like a thousand years ago. I fought my way out of that cave. Became Iron Man. Realized I loved you. I know I said no more surprises, but I was really hoping to pull off one last one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast. I'm David Chen, and with me is... Adventure Hardwire. And joining us today, he's the editor-in-chief of SlashFilm.com. He's also the host of Slash Film Daily, which you can find at daily.slashfilm.com. Peter Serretta. Peter, welcome back to Slash Filmcast. How are you doing today? I am doing great. I'm excited to be here and talking about Avengers Endgame. Which, yeah, uh, Endgame, yeah. Yeah, more Endgame. It's just the three of us today, although Jeff will probably be joining us in the form of a sponsorship slot. Uh, but uh, yeah, you can find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com. You can also email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. This is going to be a weird slash different episode than usual. Uh, rather than doing a full episode with me, Devendra, and Jeff, we're going to be doing me, uh, Devendra, and Peter Serretta doing an Avengers Endgame mailbag. That is going to be followed by an episode of Slash Film Daily, which... Uh, they they recorded many episodes about Avengers Endgame this week, uh, and they did one episode that I'm going to put in the middle of this uh, episode of the Slash Filmcast that's basically about where we left off with all of the uh, characters in Avengers Endgame in, in terms of the MCU. Like, what's going to happen with, like, literally every single character? You, you go, like, <laughs> you, you run down, like, every single character and what is going to happen to We go them. to Aunt May. That's yeah, how... Yeah, you go to Aunt May. Like, what is the deal with Aunt May at the end of Avengers Endgame? Uh, and so if you want to nerd out with them, uh, you have that as well. And then finally, as a little, as a little bonus, as a little palate cleanser at the end of this episode, I had a chance to speak with Brian J. Roan from the film stage... Uh, and the Film Stage podcast uh, to talk with him about why he thinks Avengers Endgame is morally reprehensible. So that conversation is going to be at the very end uh, of this episode of the podcast. So it's kind of like uh, a Frankenstein combination of a bunch of different uh, pieces of content for Avengers Endgame. Uh, And uh, I hope that you enjoy the variety uh, and that you find it something different and that you find it to be a little bit deeper than we would normally go even on a movie as big as Avengers Endgame. I do want to mention before we begin that we are going to spoil Avengers Endgame. So if you haven't seen Avengers Endgame yet, uh, then you should definitely wait until you've seen it before uh, you listen to this episode of the podcast. And I actually think what the Russo brothers declared that there was there was a an end to the spoiler moratorium. This happened today, right, Peter? Yeah, they said on Monday that is when spoil. It's okay to talk about it's spoilers. It's weapons and- free on spoilers. By the way, uh, it's just coincidentally the trailer for Spider-Man: Far From Home is dropping that day, so I'm mm, I'm guessing that has something sure. to do with it. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, uh, I, I saw some very mixed reaction to this on the internet. That like, it's it's very rare for a director to basically say publicly, yeah. "Hey, from this point forward, you can spoil my movie." Right? Like, it's like Zeus coming from down on high to say, <laughs> "Like, hey, mortals." You know, but, this is allowed now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I think, like, this trailer is going to have to spoil the events mm. of the end of Endgame. Do you right. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In order to reveal more than, than the Far From Home marketing already has, right? So Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but to, to their credit, you know, I think that the – and I think you talk about this on an episode of Slash Film Daily, if I'm not mistaken, Peter, that, like, uh, the Russo brothers did do quite a bit to hide the events of Endgame 
from any trailers that went out, right? So it feels yeah, like they, they, they have ma- shots that are not in the movie. They have computer generated, like all they have altered shots. Brad has a whole breakdown on the site, and we talked about it on um, Thursday's episode of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. So it, it feels like they made a really good faith effort uh, to prevent people from being spoiled on this film before the movie came out. Uh, and so, as a result of that, I feel like, hey, you, you've earned a little bit of credit. That being said, what, a week and a half is when they've said that the the spoilers are going to be out? That's, like, pretty quick, you know? Dave, uh, Dave you got to blame Sony here. Sony wanted to get so- Spider-Man out for the summer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And that's probably also, yeah, that's why the trailer had to come out extra early, too, right? So it's all, it's all there. Yeah. All right. Well, we got some emails that were sent to us at both slash filmcast at gmail.com. And also uh, the Slash Home Daily account, right? What's the uh, email address there, Peter? Peter at SlashHome.com. Peter at SlashHome.com and also SlashHomeCastGmail.com. So I'm going to read a couple emails uh, from both accounts that were sent to both accounts. And again, uh, spoilers for Avengers Endgame. So let's start with an easy one, gentlemen. Tom in Vegas asks, hey guys, I came out of Endgame absolutely loving it. Then I realized that there were at least six times when the audience cheered during the movie. The loudest being when Cap picked up the hammer, Natch. I, for one, cannot remember being in a movie that had so much audience reaction. So that's my question for you is, what movie have you been to that had the most audience reactions? Hmm. I, I have an answer for this, Dave. I'm not sure if you're going to like this answer or not. All right. Hit me, Peter Serretta. But it actually is Avengers Endgame. Wow. I went to the world premiere of Shocking Avengers twist. Endgame. Yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, by the way, the anticipation for a film cannot be higher than it is at the premiere because no one's seen the movie and everybody's gathered in theater and they usually like get you. You have to get in there an hour before. So you're sitting there watching the the people that are in the movie walk the red carpet on the screen. And, you know, the, the anticipation is just building. And, it, and then when it starts playing, you are watching it with the people that made the movie. And like so there's like just an energy in the air. And I, I, I feel like with Avengers Endgame. He mentioned six times throughout the film people cheered in his screening. I would venture to say it was three dozen times in my screening of Avengers Endgame. Like, there was parts of the movie I could not hear because people were just, like, clapping and (laughs) cheering. And at the end of the movie, when they have the, you know, the, the roll call. The, the credit sequence there um, where they're announcing, you know, where they have all the characters that were in the movie and they were bringing the actors on stage alongside this. It was just like every single one was like a standing ovation in addition to that. And it was just like it, it, the enthusiasm for this film literally brought me to tears. So, well, that's very cool. Uh, so your answer is Avengers Endgame. Uh, Devendra, any, any answer to the question of uh, most reaction to a movie that you've seen at I a mean, screening? Yeah, most reaction can mean a lot of things, right? It's right. not just uh, cheering. It could be gasping. It could be shouting at the screen. Uh, I saw Get Out here in Brooklyn, and that was a ton of fun. Uh, honestly, I'm trying to think of what else. Like, certainly, like back in college, Kill Bill Volume Two. Uh, I used to go to a lot of midnight screenings, like for the really nerdy stuff uh, during college too. So uh, I think during the Lord of the Rings movies, like where all the nerds kind of converge, you certainly get the loudest. I think my favorite is probably that crazy Scott Pilgrim Comic Con screening mm. where. Yeah, everyone was just, like, so in tune with what that movie was doing. Um, yeah, people so were cheering. We, we, we should, we should point time. out, right, that it was at Comic-Con in whenever the year Scott Pilgrim came out, right, that they did a presentation at San Diego Comic-Con and then led everyone 
to a theater where they then Legendary. screened, screened yeah. the entire film for everyone, right? They yeah. surprised. Everybody was just yeah. there to see some footage at this uh, Hall H presentation, and they walked them down to the theater. And then afterwards, the band uh, that made the music from the movie yeah. was yeah. on stage. The curtain stage. pulled up, and the metric you know, played a whole set, and it was, it was crazy. Like That's certainly a thing that, that, yeah, I'll never forget. So in terms of my recollection of big movies that uh i've seen that have like a huge audience reaction the two that i can think of right again as divinder pointed out it depends on what reaction you're referring to uh in terms of like participatory audience reaction i'd say any of the room screenings that i've been to the tommy Wiseau movie right like those are like everyone knows every line in that film they're like you're basically paying for audience participation yeah Yeah, yeah 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 so any screening of the room is generally very enjoyable it's its own event. It's not really a movie screening. It's like kind of this, you know, cult. By the way, do you think anybody yeah. has ever gone to a screening of the room at midnight and been annoyed by like he can't like <laughs> seeing it for the first time and can't like hear what's going on? Uh, I, I think it's possible. Like certainly, there was a period of transition between. Earlier on, when like not everyone had a like, the, it, it is now established, right? Like the the things that you say and do during the screening are now established, and so like everyone knows them. And earlier on, that wasn't the case, and so like I can't imagine someone coming in, uh, like someone coming in now fresh. It would be pretty frustrating if you don't know all the rituals. Um, but earlier on, that was that was not what happened, and there's kind of this. Uh, I kind of got to see it take form as I went to the screenings over time. Uh, but the room is one answer. But the thing I, I remember most probably is the, the uh, one of the first press screenings for Paranormal Activity One oh, that yeah. I saw at uh, the blast. Coolidge Corner Theater in Boston, and mm-hmm. that was like an incredible experience because it scared the crap out of everyone. And uh, I think it, I imagine that's what it was like for Blair Witch, like the first people right. seeing Blair Witch or right. something. Right. I saw I saw Blair Witch in the theater as well, but it was it didn't get the same reaction. I mean, because there's like Paranormal Activity. One of the best things about it is that it's very heavy into the jump scares. So mm-hmm. uh, anyway, so that's our answer to Tom's question from Vegas, who writes in the slash from catchgmail.com. Uh, we got a lot of emails from people really reacting uh, to the film that I wanted to to read. Uh, Rich wrote into slash filmcastgmail.com. Uh, I finished listening to your Endgame review and I was struck by your focus and really Marvel's focus on family. I'd like to share just the smallest bit about how the MCU and Endgame play a sometimes surprising role in my family. I have three children aged uh, 10, 8, and 6. My oldest daughter found the wonderful animated series Superhero Squad on her own at a young age. And being a little nerdy myself, Marvel became something we could bond over. If you don't know, Superhero Squad prominently features Thanos as the big bad and the Infinity Stones. We started letting the kids watch the MCU at home when they were fairly young, and it's since escalated to my being outright chastised if we don't go to an MCUY film on opening night. These films have influenced how they uh, view the world, how my daughter sees the role of strong women in society, how we make complex moral and ethical decisions, and serves as a shorthand to explain complex subjects, especially in this political environment. My barely six-year-old loves MCU films but often struggles, especially when we see letter showings to sit quietly. He isn't so bad that we won't take him to premiere nights, but it definitely means my wife or I need to tamp him down, especially during the slow parts. Yet for the three hours of Endgame, he was fully engrossed, even during the first hour, only asking some relevant questions and for me to read the subtitles. Think about it. A six-year-old so invested in what these characters were doing that they could calmly sit through a three-hour film and understand what was going on. 
My kids constantly surprise me. One thing that is so great about the MCU is that even when relationships and plots aren't fully uh, conceived or even necessarily always very good, they can still serve as a bridge between generations by giving us a common language. My children have literally grown up with the MCU, and using it as as shorthand to conversations about the wider world is something delightful, unexpected, and incredibly useful as a parent. End quote. That comes in from Rich, who writes in slash from castgmail.com. I uh, wish Jeff Kanata could be here. I'm sure he'd have a lot to say about this. But Devinger, <laughs> you are a new recent parent. Yes. Uh, have you started thinking about like how you're going to communicate the MCU to your child in, you know, well, I mean, if you're rich, you're, you're going to start. Not, ch- not just the MCU. Like I have, <laughs> I, I have things much closer to my heart. It's like, uh, when, when is Star Wars going to happen? You know, when is like <laughs> some of my favorite uh, Miyazaki films? I love the MCU. Uh, there, you know, there, there's a lot of things in pop culture I'm trying to figure out. Like, I'd certainly, I think I'd introduce uh, my daughter Sophia to uh, Avatar, Last Airbender before a lot of the MCU films, you know, mm. things like that. So I definitely have this priority in mind. Uh, yeah, and something I'm definitely thinking about. Like, I'm not, I don't, it's tough. I think with kids, it's tough to tell like when they're ready for certain types of films. Some of the MCU films can be kind of scary and a little intense, and some of the like the tone kind of varies quite a bit. So like maybe Guardians of the Galaxy early on is kind of fun; it has Groot and everything, and like you know you could go with that. Um, it is certainly yeah. Some of the other ones get a little rough, don't they? Yeah, it's interesting to to contemplate uh, a world where you need to show your kids the MCU and then need to figure out which order that would be in, right? Because we we watched them when we came when they came out in theaters, um, but I, I can't imagine growing up when all the MCU films have already been out and then needing to figure out like in what order I should watch them in. Uh, there's like lists that have been out on the internet, like some lists that organize the MCU chronologically, right? In terms of uh, not when they were made, but when events take place. So you'd start with, I think, uh, the first Avenger, move on yeah. to like Captain Marvel, right? And the and most so literal of lists, yeah. Right, Except right. like I, I never understand folks who do that. I, I, I could see doing it for fun, uh, but to shape the way you know your child sees a series because of time and not because of like the organic way that pop culture led you know from one movie to another. I, uh, that always seems like the preferable thing to me. That's right. how I'm thinking of Star Wars too, right? Like I would, I would you, you would never wa- start with Episode One, that, and uh, that, that doesn't it doesn't make sense to start with Episode One, right? Oh, but the thing is, kids do really like it, so it's like the, it's these things I have to think about mm. personally. I would I would like my daughter's first touch of Star Wars to be Episode you know four or A New Hope or something. Yeah, you, you know the the problem with the chronological viewing of anything is that you're missing out on like the references and stuff like yeah like it's not the way it was intended to be watched and like you're missing out on a whole meta level of it uh i think that's right i think that's right i think like chronologically by when the movies came out is probably the the way i would stick with you know yeah uh, i i do love the drew mcweeney star wars which i I know you guys have talked on this podcast about in the past but watching a new hope empire strikes back and then when you find out spoiler alert that darth vader is luke's father that then you go episode one two three and then return of the jedi i I do want to keep those those like defining pop culture moments a little precious like i i want to be the one to introduce my daughter to that right and you know like I, i don't think this email quite touched on it but I think the idea of family certainly was a really big thing throughout Endgame in general, right? And I found that to be one of the strongest aspects of the film. Uh, let me just tell you guys, like, I'm a pretty logical, rational guy. Um, but the moment my daughter was born, things are just a little different 
it's sort of like we joked about uh, the reader saying, like, we could never really understand Interstellar, right, until we had children. Um, I don't think that's quite true, but there is something that fundamentally kind of shifts within you when that happens, because it's like, it, it is weird. It is insane that this being exists, you know, who did not a couple of months ago. Um, you you feed her, you take care of her, but in general, she's growing because of, you know, DNA coding, you know, laid down through time and evolution, and it just happens. This thing just grows and becomes an intelligent, conscious being. It is magical. It's insane because we don't we don't have any you know we don't have any explanation for a lot of this stuff. We we can't even define consciousness. I've been studying consciousness uh, since college. We have no clue what's going on. Um, so it is magical to see it happen within you. Um, and I think that honestly that the relationship between Tony Stark and his daughter in the movie. I feel like kind of, kind of reckons with that. Like he's a super scientist, you know, he's a smart, rational guy. And I think the daughter kind of unlocked something else in him too. Well, thanks for sharing Devendra. And uh, we will look forward to hearing about how you introduce your, your child to pop culture. Uh, sounds like, uh, I think she's in good hands yeah. when it comes to the pop culture, at least. It'll so. be good. The hard part is like making sure it doesn't, she doesn't get overloaded. And yeah, those things. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, Paul from Adelaide, Australia. So, so I, I will just say, right, like that. Rich's email is is interesting. The idea of the MCU being some kind of way to teach morality to children, mm-hmm. I think, is is interesting because I, I would say overall they do a pretty good job. Like they get some things pretty wrong, but like overall, I, I'd feel comfortable with a child watching these. I think they generally mm-hmm. emphasize the idea of good over evil. The idea that there is some complexity, the idea that we should oh, – like fundamentally when I think of the MCU, the 22 films, like the, the message that uh, that come, emerges for me is the idea that um, we should believe that people can be their best selves and that those best selves uh, can be a positive force in the world. Uh, that, that's kind of the totality I feel. But uh, mm-hmm. anyway, let's uh, check out this email from Paul from Australia who writes in – uh, I wanted to write in about a small part of Endgame that you may not have paid much attention to, but made a huge impact on me. During the support group sequence, Joe Russo makes a cameo as a civilian, and he recalls a story about returning to the dating scene after the snap. This could have easily been written as a straight character, but the character is explicitly gay and uses the male pronoun multiple times. The scene isn't played for laughs and is quite emotional. It definitely brought me to tears, not only because of the emotion of the story, because of Captain America's caring and supportive reaction to it. I was in a sold-out screening, and the audience didn't laugh or snicker or make comments. It was a really heartening moment for me, as I've seen those reactions in the past. The Chinese market may be holding back Marvel from putting a full-blown queer superhero on the big screen, but I really appreciate the fact that they put this in. I just know that 10 years ago when the MCU started up, it wouldn't have been the case. Mm-hmm. End quote. That comes in from Paul from Australia. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this has been making some headlines this week about, like, the first openly gay character in the MCU. Uh, none yeah. of us are gay, so we can't really speak yeah. to that uh, that group of people's experience with this scene. But I, I will say I've seen more criticism of that scene than support of it. So I'm, I'm glad to see this letter. I'm glad that somebody got something good out of it. Because it definitely, to me, the the impact I've seen from a lot of folks is that it felt a little cheap and a little cloying, like just to have this throwaway character basically in the final film of this first, you know, the, after the first 22 movies uh, to, to have it be there and not like, you know, actual superhero or, or somebody, somebody integral to the film, 
You know, it feels like they kind of just had to stuff it in. But I'm glad that, you know, this this reader had a good experience from it. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad, too, because I know, like, Disney has done this a bunch of times where there's characters that the actors say off screen that yeah. they are gay. Like, like Tess Thompson. Yeah, yeah. 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 And um, I think that's kind of BS. And this is to actually have a character on screen. I know this isn't a hero per se, but it's, it's character in the film. I know some people have criticized Joe Russo for not casting a gay actor in that role. Right. But uh, you know what? I don't know. I, I, I think this is good. I, I did hear from a friend who was seeing it opening night that they saw it at the opening night screening, 6 p.m. screening, and a dad angrily ushered his two kids out of the screening after that, that scene. Of wow. course. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I do think that uh, there is something notable about the fact that th- this is probably going to be the biggest movie of the year, right? I mean, uh, I don't know. Can you, Peter Serrata, can you think of any movie that's going to make more money than this one? Uh, the, the, the only one by any chance is Star Wars, the, uh, oh, yeah. Rise the Rise of Skywalker. Skywalker. Right. But even that, I mean, this this might even beat Avatar. Yeah, it's this, like, this has oh, a yeah. chance of unseating yeah. Avatar, which is pretty crazy. Um, by the way, on our summer movie wager, I was the highest person out of the Slash Film cast and Slash Film Daily <laughs> to put the side bet $850 million and it's going to crush that. Like, it's going to go many hundreds of millions above that guess. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to do pretty well. And I I do think uh, it is no, – like, I, I understand if people don't like it or if they think it's, like, uh, not a big enough step. Uh, totally, totally respect that point of view. Um, but I do think it's, it's still, at the very least, notable that – uh, they decided to have an openly gay character in the biggest movie of the year. That this this kind of like per per the uh, angry dad that you referenced, Peter. Like it it puts this character in front of that angry dad and his and his uh, children, uh, and I, I think that is something that is uh, worthwhile. Um, but and, you know, and I also love that those kind of people can't say that it hurt this movie in any way exactly. because look at how much money this movie's doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in general, you know, there are some missteps, but in general, I feel like uh, the MCU and Disney like make a good faith effort when it comes to representation on the big screen. Um, sure. Like, I, I feel like there have been more. Uh, wins than misses. Uh, I mean, just thinking about like the cast of all the MCU, thinking about the cast of uh, the new Star Wars movies, right? Like, uh, I am very heartened when I see those casts, right? And uh, I don't know that... Uh, like Again, they haven't always gotten it right. They haven't always nailed it. But like in general, I, I am encouraged by it. So, so um, anyway, I wanted to, to call that out. So, All right, let's dive into some specific plot points from Avengers Endgame. This email comes in from Brad from Toluca Lake, California, uh, who writes in, if Captain Marvel is the most powerful Avenger, uh, couldn't she have used the gauntlets to snap Tony back without having to worry about dying? So Brad is referring to the scene at the end of the film when there's this gauntlet and uh, like the, the last battle sequence focuses on this gauntlet and trying to get it to Tony Stark, right? And at one point, Captain Marvel takes hold of the gauntlet, and there's this question of, well, Captain Marvel is way more powerful than all the other Avengers. Why doesn't she just do the snap? Uh, Peter Serrata, do you have any thoughts on, on this question? I think because that would 
it's a better story if Tony dies. It's a better arc for him as a <laughs> character. I mean, I really think that's it. And I, I, I know our own uh, Chris Evangelista on uh, SlashFilm.com wrote an article that was published on Thursday called Avengers Endgame suggests that the MCU has a problem with Captain Marvel's power. And I, I, he goes into that a little bit there, too. I think Captain Marvel is such an overpowered superhero that it's it's going to pose a problem for the MCU going forward. And it's going to be mm-hmm. interesting to see how they're going to deal with that. I know when I talked to Kevin Feige when uh, he was promoting Captain Marvel, he told me that uh, we haven't seen her limitations yet. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that's going to be part of it. But uh, I mean, what do you what do you guys think? Like, is there any story reason why she didn't use Use the nope, uh, time zone? Not really. No, no. It, it seems like she's basically thrown into the movie. And I did. Uh, I was listening to the Empire podcast, and they did uh, an interview with the Russos. I believe they they shot the Captain Marvel stuff even before, like Captain Marvel the movie was being shot. Right. So Brie Larson didn't even have like a sense of the character or anything yet. Um, there, there was. Yeah. It, it seems. It feels very abrupt whenever she appears in Endgame. So, I mean, I, I, looking back on the film, right, are there any issues that nag at you about Avengers Endgame when it comes to, to the plot? I think that, uh, in general, this is a movie that, and you'll hear me talk about this later when I speak with Brian Roan, but th- this is a movie where I kind of feel like to enjoy it, you have to shut off your brain to some extent, right? You can't <laughs> think too hard about it. Um, or else it'll consume you. And, uh, I mean, that's one of the things right there with, like, Captain Marvel. Yeah, why didn't she put the gauntlet on? Um, why didn't Captain Marvel travel back in time? Wouldn't this have been an important enough mission that she could kind of uh, turn her back on the 6,000 other galaxies she's helping out, you know? Yeah, um, and doesn't this help all the galaxies? Yeah, doesn't this help all the galaxies? <laughs> doesn't this rising tide lift all the boats? Uh, so you just you just kind of, like, kind of accept it, or else it'll, it'll bother yeah. you too much. But um, looking back on it, right, like, I've been reading a lot of your coverage, Peter, and, uh, you know, there, there's yeah, a lot of... I initially had a lot of problems with the time travel. I think that's what you're building up to, right? So, so you, you wrote an article for the site about, like, all the time paradoxes and, and like, h- how time is weird in the movie, right? Like, so, at the and, end and of the I movie... And I saw the movie three times, and I thought, like, days and days about this. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> like, you said that nobody should be thinking about this. I did that work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Quote-unquote work. Um, <laughs> did you see... Did you ever see that movie, The Social Network, uh, the yeah. uh, David Fincher movie? And there's that scene when the Winklevoss brothers are meeting with the president of Harvard, and they like recite a piece of the Harvard handbook, and the president of Harvard responds, and you memorize that instead of doing what exactly? <laughs> Which uh, is kind of how I feel whenever I or someone else such as yourself dedicates an enormous quantity of time to uh, you know, thinking about <laughs> yeah. Avengers Endgame, for yeah. instance. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think that uh, one of the things that you had referenced was like you, you started thinking through the implications of bringing everyone back after the snap, right? So the unsnapping is what what I'm calling the it. unsnapping, right? So like if somebody if somebody uh, was in a plane and the <laughs> pilot uh, was vanished. And then the plane crashed. Uh, would all the people who died in the plane crash come back to life? Uh, and if they do, would they just fall from? W- the would they reappear in midair? <laughs> right. Yeah. And the most disturbing yeah. one is: what if you were having sex with your wife, 
when the snap happened and then you disappeared. By the way, that would that would uh, probably destroy that person. <laughs> like like that moment right there. You, you just pulled a plot point from the leftovers, sir. Yeah, I, yeah. I know, I know, I know. But then <laughs> what happens five years later when that person comes back and reappears in the bed after the person finally, like the Joe Russo character, five years later has started dating and is now having sex with, you know, the, the person that they uh, have found, you know, five years later. Like that, that, that would be a devastating turn of events. I like, think I, 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 I do I, love the, the thing that changed my <laughs> mind the most about time travel movies was yeah. when I listened to the director's commentary of Primer, the Shane Kruth movie. And in that, commentary he said something that forever changed my perception of time travel movies he says um that like the, the thing is when people travel through time what you don't also understand is that in general people are also traveling through space right like we're on a freaking you know blue sphere hurtling through space at thousands of miles per hour yeah. and so when you come back through time you are theoretically reappearing in that same space and so, like, the Earth wouldn't even be there anymore, right? Like, Earth yeah. is in a completely different position if you're, you know, going back to time. And actually, in that movie, Primer, they find a way to they, – they do their best to, like, account for that. Uh, yeah. But no other movie really really does that. No other <laughs> if, movie we, really if we can throw, you know, a rocket to the moon using basic, you know, math, uh, accounting for the orbital spin of the Earth and the moon and everything, like, we could, you could do that with time travel. You just have to do the work. Like throw in the sentence there. Yeah, keep, you have to do uh, you have to do the work. That's again. right. You have to do the work, Devendra. I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, basically a lot of like upsetting implications. Uh, also, Mike Ryan did a piece for Uproxx, you know, where he dove even deeper to some of the implications. Like, if if you come back, like if you're one of the people that have been unsnapped, everyone else is aged five years and you haven't. Mm-hmm. So like, uh, you're. Driver's license is probably expired. Your family has moved on. Um, your you probably lost your job because they probably filled your position. So your life is essentially ruined in a lot of ways. Uh, and then there's a question of like, what about your birthday? Like, do you now have a different birthday that impacts your like social security uh, benefits and such? You know, because like, do you have like, because you haven't lived for five years, so do you keep the same birthday or do you like, do you age it up, yeah. you know, or down five years? Like, what, what about life a, insurance? Yeah. Your, your family got all this money from life insurance. Yeah, so they have now, to give that back they... now, right? Like, yeah. it, basically, you coming back would actually be a terrible thing in many ways, right? <laughs> so, uh, okay, I don't, I don't remember how I got into this, but I think we were just talking yeah. about uh, overall, like, kind of plot issues uh, with the film. Oh yeah. Oh, so Peter, your biggest issue, right, is one of the things that's established in the movie is that you can't change the past, right? That yes. like when you go back and change something, you're actually creating a new, a brand new branching timeline, and so the idea of of Captain America going back, and then like you see him again in the present, um, that doesn't make sense based on the rules of the film, right? Yeah, yeah, and the Russo brothers has basically basically confirmed my theorizing in this piece that basically <laughs> when you go back in time, you are not going to the the past of this prime timeline, you're going to an alternate version of that past. So mm-hmm. like, you know, when you bring Thanos into the future or when, when he brings himself into the future, that's not the Thanos that goes and snaps. That's a different Thanos and killing him does not stop him from snapping. But the big problem is yes, cap going back in time, spending his life with Peggy Carter 
That should be like a different exists. timeline, basically, right? Yeah. yeah. And and they have also confirmed my my speculation about that as well, that basically at some point he would have had to travel back into the future using the pim particles. He he had additional pim particles and he would have had to travel into the future and then he would be again in the prime timeline, if that makes yeah. sense. Right. Yeah. Right. Like waited till he got old, then hopped over. So it's like, hey, by the way, guys, uh, don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> All good. Yeah. yeah. Happy mean, life. Yeah. I the, mean, the funny thing, the funniest thing is I, I wrote this like long article. I think it's like 2000 words geez. explaining all this. And then all I get on Twitter is like people responding like, but Nebula killed herself. Shouldn't she disappear like in Back to the Future? And I'm like, this movie told you <laughs> that Back to the Future logic does not work. Like, this, sure, did you sure, read sure. my piece? But, I mean, Peter, if like you, if you could break down that logic, like I think you also do have the pieces where, yeah, you can assume that Cap jumped over to the to the yeah. current timeline at some point after aging right do, do you know what this article i'm sorry do you know what this conversation reminds me of this onion article do you see this uh <laughs> it's it's titled new avengers fan theory suggests key to beating thanos could be nothing because he's not real and none of this exists <laughs> so i just i mean that's it's certainly it, how i feel after i see some very long twitter threads yes. it's it's fun to think about but it's also like yeah it's it's all fake it's all yeah, none, none it's of fun. it's real um all uh, the, the one area of inquiry that i think is most interesting is in captain america winter soldier right uh a young steve rogers meets an old peggy carter and there's been a lot of questions as to whether or not that version of Peggy Carter was actually married to uh, the Steve Rogers, like an older Steve Rogers that we know that traveled back in time, right? Uh, and it's it's compatible. Like, if you want to believe that that is the Peggy Carter that's married to Steve Rogers and that, like, you know, uh, they disguised her, her husband's identity to protect him, uh, that's that's very plausible. Peter, do you have any opinion on that? Uh, it, it just doesn't work out with the logic that is explained <laughs> by smart Hulk in this movie. If you go back into the past, you cannot change it. So the, unless we're living now in that other timeline, right? It, it doesn't make any sense. Unless the they movie, gave you, they gave you all the tools to fix this though. And it, it is what we're saying where, yeah, he lives in the other timeline. He hops over to this one and says, Hey guys, and goes back. I, I, I will say this. Like there are some, like Hollywood movies where obviously the screenwriters have no thought, like they don't even care to explain or think about any of these things. Right, right. I really believe Marcus and Nick Fury spent so much time on this movie that they actually have logistically how everything works. It's just, you don't have time in the movie to explain it. And right. like, I think the few times that they do offer some explanations, it all adds up to, you know, what the Russes have said. All right. Let's read one last email. This one comes in from Errol Laurie. Errol writes into slashfilmcast.gmail.com. Hey, Peter. Just wanted to share my thoughts on this theory I've had for a while now, since you'll be having more Avengers conversations this week. I feel like this one's pretty obvious, but I want to highlight it anyway, because I think it's important. We as an audience have been pretty tired of seeing iterations of Uncle Ben dying in the several retcons of Peter Parker. In the same way we don't need to see Bruce Wayne's parents die over and over again. That being said, I think that sneaking in this multi-movie love and father figure of Tony Stark, not only giving Spider-Man his suits, but also instilling the morals that Peter eventually adopts for himself and his life philosophy, was a clever and emotional nod to giving an an MCU-appropriate... Uncle Ben analog that didn't make us roll our eyes at how we've quote-unquote heard this one before. 
I thought that it was a beautiful way to make a character that previously only mattered to Peter matter to all of us and make us feel the weight of that loss the same way he does. And it makes future Spider-Man films all the more appealing to me as a viewer. Anyway, I just wanted to share how much I love that relationship and how it blows all other Uncle Ben stories out of the water for me. Thanks for all the news and opinions. Keep them coming. So that comes in from uh, Errol Laurie. What do you guys think of the idea of Tony Stark as a uh, Uncle Ben analog in the MCU? I think it works. Um, but I think, they, I think they bamboozled all of us into thinking <laughs> that the Uncle Ben thing wasn't going to come into play. And yeah, they totally used Tony as that, as that part of the story. Uh, I mean, it seems like he is he is a major character who dies. I don't think we can call all of those like the Uncle Ben analogs. Like he is based on what we've seen. Like I'm not I'm not a comic book expert or something here, but like based on what we've seen from the movies, right? Uncle Ben tends to die early on, and Spider Man is trying to figure out who he is as a person and trying to like you know deal with the responsibility of his powers. And this whole thing is happening way after that for the Peter Parker in these movies. He he has a sense he wants to be the do-gooder. He wants to be the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. He doesn't like he doesn't need those lessons from Tony Stark. What he gets are much different lessons. So I, I, it feels it feels almost like it's boiling down what happens with Tony Stark just to be another Uncle Ben. I think it's more than that. It is yeah. kind of said though that at this point Peter Parker didn't have a father and then lost two father figures. Right. I mean, that's just like yeah. super tragic. Um, Avengers yeah. therapy. That's the next one. Yeah, indeed. Uh, yeah. And how shocked is Errol going to be that he somehow used pimp particles and jumped from the slash film daily over to slash film cast. I know it's going to completely <laughs> blow his mind. It's going to completely blow his mind. All right, folks. Um, well, after this conversation, um, you are going to hear, a Slash Film Daily episode running down uh, what is happening with all the characters in Avengers Endgame. And then a conversation with me and Brian Roan uh, about why he finds Avengers Endgame uh, morally reprehensible. But uh, in the meantime, uh, any other thoughts, any things you wish you had expressed during your hardware in our review of Endgame? I mean, we recorded that review before the movie came out, right? So, like... Uh, yeah. Now, now we've experienced a full week of the discourse around the movie. Did uh, we did we talk about the idea that uh, they had written the in-game script before the Infinity War script? No, I, I, I had kind of heard about. Yeah, that. I got I got that from the Empire podcast basically, and like the Russos were saying, like, oh yeah, they had the idea of Infinity War. They were able to like write it, get that done and settled. But uh, they had the idea for Endgame, basically. They were able to get that script a little locked in. Whereas Infinity War, it took them a while to figure out how they were going to tell that story. Because it's all table setting. It's a lot of plot. It's a lot of things to set up to lead to Endgame. And I wonder, like, just I'm thinking back about my own problems with, with Infinity War, kind of how it felt um, propulsive to a point without without too much meaning. And I wonder if, like, their struggle to tell that story kind of came through there. Uh, I just found that interesting. Yeah, I'm wondering because I I listen to the podcast. I listen to you guys talk uh, from week to week like everybody listening right now. And I know, uh, Dave, you were wondering, I think, a few months ago after you see Endgame, if that would make you feel differently at all about Infinity War. So I'm wondering Mm -hmm. now now that you've seen them seen Endgame, like I guess you haven't seen them back to back. But like, does it does it make this better as a whole or no? Not really. No, like everything for me, right? I get I, that first scene in Endgame gives you gives you everything, gives you all the meaning, gives you the weight of the snapping, the snapping, I guess, or whatever, um, the snapshot. Uh, there are certainly scenes in Infinity War that I really like, but watching that whole thing 
you know, entirely. It's just exhausting as hell. The the description I cannot get out of my head. I think I heard about this on the next picture. I, I I'm, if I got this wrong, I apologize. Um, but I think the next picture show podcast quoted another reviewer as describing Avengers: Infinity War as a DDoS attack on. Uh, yes. the, on the brain, <laughs> like basically yes. that, like yeah. like a denial of service attack, which if you don't know is basically hitting a server with so many requests that it like shuts down. Uh, yeah. That it, it is like Infinity War is an endless series of locations and characters and plot developments uh, and people and dying very quickly. Like people dying very quickly. Dying very quickly. I, I mean, yeah. I, I think when I when I think about Infinity, so so. To answer your question, I, I feel more like – it feels weird to say, but when I think of Endgame, I think of it less as a two-part – like the second part of a two-parter movie and, yeah, and the conclusion yeah. of Infinity War. And I think of it more as the conclusion to the entire MCU. Mm-hmm. I, I, it, you know, I know it is a direct continue, like literally events pick up like hours or days after uh, Infinity War, but, but – uh, Yeah, but a lot of these events are earned because of what's set up in Infinity War, I think. Yeah, but but I guess like from, from when I think of uh, Endgame, it's like every single MCU film is referenced. Like I don't think a single MCU film is not referenced and or like doesn't reward you or, or, or like Endgame doesn't reward you for watching every single film. Yeah, and I think that is like f- first of all really impressive. It, and it's not just like oh hey look this is a thing that happened right. It's not just a reference. It's like hey uh, something was set up in an earlier film and it pays off in Endgame. And I think that's just that's really impressive, um, and so that's why I feel like it's more of a, of an end for the MCU rather than an end for Infinity War. When I think of Infinity War, you know, yeah, like like Devendra said, uh, I, I have a lot of fondness for that movie. I have a lot of fondness for that movie delivering one of the most shocking endings I've ever seen in a in, in a theater. Like what a, what an amazing theater going experience. I love how for an entire year. Everyone in the world lived with this uncertainty of what was going to happen, and, and we've never—I've never—like I can't recall feeling that way. You know, this must have been like what people felt like when, like Star Trek: The Next Generation, The Best of Both Worlds Part One aired before the yeah. summer. You know, like it's like I—I I, I can't recall feeling like like s- such a big cliffhanger and like yeah. wanting so much to know how it resolves. And so, there's a lot of things I do appreciate about Infinity War, but. Uh, it's not a film I particularly enjoy watching. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's just. I, I will say, Dave. By the way, somebody has forgotten who shot Mr. Burns parts one and two. <laughs> okay, it's true. It's true. Yeah, I, uh, that was. I've right. enjoyed it more. I've enjoyed it more on uh, subsequent viewings. But I do also want to bring up a lot of people, and I think even you, Dave, were making fun of the fact that there's a Spider-Man Far From Home movie coming out, and uh, you know we we know how Endgame's going to end, like you know Spider-Man's going to come back, and you know what, you were right. But there's also a Black Widow movie coming out, and you know what, she dies in Endgame, and <laughs> like that did not tee us to anything. I'd always, I don't, I thought the, the the Black Widow thing was supposed to be an origin story. That's kind of what I assumed. Well, that's a rumor now, yeah. but they have not ever confirmed that. Yeah, like for me, the the existence of the future movies that didn't affect like my interpretation of the ending of Infinity War. It was more of what the movie did with it, and I don't feel like it. It was a shocking moment. I don't feel like we got enough time with a lot of those characters to really feel the impact of that. Uh, that movie threw so much at us. Like, yeah, it was a de- denial of service attack against like the way I empathized with those characters. Because there was just so much flooding at me. Whereas this movie starts with Hawkeye losing his family. 
and it destroys him. And that's it. That's all you need. And that kind of got me right on board with this one. And I guess the overall message of Infinity War too. I think like we talked in our review of Endgame about how Endgame almost solves some of the problems that previous uh, MCU films had. Like Patrick yeah. said this like that, you know, Thor The Dark World is a better movie now because of Endgame. I would say, right? I, I don't. I wouldn't go back and rewatch it, but still, like I think of Thor: The Dark World much more fondly now after watching Endgame. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas I actually have the opposite effect watching Infinity War, and uh, th- there's a couple examples that come to mind, Peter. But one is um, I think at the end of Thor: Ragnarok and the end of Guardians of the Galaxy One, right? So the end of Guardians of the Galaxy One, they put the uh, the stone on that planet, right? Um, what's it called? Xandar? Xandar, I think, right? Uh, so they save the planet of Xandar and they put the stone there for safekeeping. And, oh, yeah. And then in Infinity War, it is offhandedly referenced that Xandar has been completely destroyed. So it's like, well, what was that whole movie for? What, what do we do the whole Guardians of the Galaxy movie if you're just going to like destroy it offhand? Oh, okay. uh, Dave, Dave, Dave. That movie, okay, first of all, set up a group no, of No, I know, I, I know. I'm just gotten together. But just on top of that, they also, like. I, I understand. There's also the, another, there's Guardians of the Galaxy Infinity is a great Stone. film. It's a great film. Don't worry. But there's like, another Infinity Stone in that movie that does have a lot of weight in Infinity War. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I, I, I think what I'm saying is, like, oh, like this entire movie, the entire movie was dedicated to, like, saving Xandar, putting the stone there, and then to just, like, dismiss like offhanded like oh but yeah that thing that they did yeah it's it's completely toast like it's all gone now um that was just kind of a bummer it, it made me feel like uh well like it, it it made me question like why we even go through these movies you know for a second like well if you can just like off- and same thing with thor ragnarok right at the end of thor ragnarok it's like hey together we are now people you know we're gonna be on the ship. We're gonna be on the ship forever as a family. You know or whatever. You know I-, I know they're not gonna be on the ship forever. They're trying to find a new home and everything. But like, and then like that, gets, that that ship gets destroyed at the end of that movie. I mean, it, well, it doesn't get of. destroyed. No, like you, you see, see Thanos' the ship yeah. show up, but it we get know it's gonna get destroyed. It's like you have uh, uh, pretty I obvious. I, I disagree. But uh, anyway, the point. Be- I, I I completely disagree. That's yeah, like saying like oh something, Peter. That's it like saying like something. because a star destroyer shows up, like you know the Tie Fighter's dead, like it's or no, the X Wing is dead. That's nonsense, Peter. Dave, um, this is like a oh my god. This this is. <laughs> I don't think anybody walked out of Thor Ragnarok being like oh they're okay. Uh, I, I didn't like, say oh, I didn't man, say they were they're, okay. They're screwed. But uh, I'm looking forward to seeing their, you know, battle against this thing. I'm looking forward to seeing how they fight back. Yeah, or how they something. escape or yeah. something, you know, because they, they just spent this whole movie, like, bringing all these characters together. And then, oh, like, they're they're all, you know. And obviously, uh, Endgame did some of this too, right? Like, there's all, as we pointed out on the podcast, there is a whole Incredible Hulk movie missing from between Endgame and Infinity War. And so it's not like uh, it's not like Endgame didn't do any fast forwarding as well, but I felt like the crimes were slightly more egregious. The eliding was slightly more egregious in Infinity War, um, and that's on top of all the other issues we've discussed. So uh, I would say, does I, I think I think what you're doing there is you're fast forwarding to the interesting parts. Like I don't really need to see Thanos attacking. Xandar and getting the stone like that that's not interesting to me because there's no characters I care about there other than like what John C. Riley? Yeah, dude. Glenn Close? Come on, man. Come I, on. I I don't care. 
Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, so does it make Infinity War better in retrospect? Uh, probably yes, but not enough that I can truly love Infinity War. That's how I'd answer the question. You're so, breaking my heart. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, dude, Endgame. Uh, definitely contender for one of my top ten movies of 2019. Loved it. Can't wait to see it again. So uh, I think our love for Endgame is the same. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think that is going to bring us to uh, the end of our discussion of the Avengers Endgame mailbag. Before we move on, we got to thank all the people that donated to the podcast this week. Uh, a big thanks to Chris Tan, who wanted to make a donation dedicated to his best friend, Byron Chu, who is a longtime avid listener of the Slash Homecast and is getting married to his fiance on Friday, uh, May 3rd. Uh, so by the time you're listening to this, the wedding will already have happened. Hope you all had great nuptials. Uh, but yeah, Chris Tan dedicating uh, this to his friend, Byron Chu. Uh, who's getting married to his fiance? Congratulations from the Slash Filmcast. If you want to support what we do here on the Slash Filmcast, uh, go to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash the word filmcast and uh, donate there. You can also go to slashfilm.com, click on the Slash Filmcast tab, and use the PayPal links on the side of the page. Uh, so, up next, you're going to hear Slash Film Daily, the, the, the crossover episode of Slash Film Daily. And if you like it, Peter, where can people find more Slash Film Daily? You can find it at daily.slashfilm.com or in your podcast app of choice. Just search Slash Film Daily. And we, if you like uh, Endgame and you want to hear more, we've done, I think, three or four hours worth of content discussing spoilers and getting into the nitty gritty. So, You're not really, uh, it's not really slashfilm.com at this point. It's more slash Endgame is what I would uh, describe the site as <laughs> at this point. Hey, Dave, on, on the week that Us came out, we, we did like three episodes there. So if, if we can give Us three episodes, we can give Endgame three episodes. I, I agree. And I think uh, uh, a lot of people, you know, in all fairness, a lot of people are really interested in Endgame. So uh, I think we go where the audience wants. Devinder Harder, or can people find more of your work on the internet? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at Devinder. I write about techandgadget.com. I'm doing a tech show at nomoretech.net. That's no okay. And find all my stuff at davechen.net slash letters is where you can subscribe to my emails. And I'm making a couple of YouTube videos per month at youtube.com slash davechensky. That's davechensky. Uh, stay tuned for the Slash Film Daily crossover and also for my conversation with Brian J. Rohn uh, from the Film Stage Show. Uh, hope you enjoy these conversations. Have a great week. Dave, Dave, Dave. Before this begins, I have to post a correction here. In this podcast, I do say that the Russo brothers said Aunt May was dusted alongside uh, Peter Parker. And that's actually not true. Uh, after recording this, it has been corrected that she actually did live out this five years, which is kind of tragic without Peter Parker. Um, how did she deal with this? Maybe we'll find out on Monday with the trailer. But uh, yeah, so we were wrong. Apologize. Or apologies. Hello everyone and welcome to Slash Home Daily. On today's episode, we're going to talk about Avengers Endgame and specifically where this leaves off all the characters 
for the future of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So there's going to be a lot of speculation, but this is going to be a spoiler episode. So if you have not seen the movie, turn off this podcast and listen to it after you have seen the movie. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta. And joining me at this podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? So I'm glad we were able to get together today because I know Ben is about to go on a, an international trip and uh, we wanted to get you on to talk about Endgame. Uh, I guess, very briefly, uh, tell me how much you love this movie. Uh, I love this movie a lot. Jacob, do you love this movie? I had a vivid emotional reaction matched only by Game of Thrones and Harry Potter books. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, I think I cried the second time I saw it. I like I was taking notes, and I actually like took notes of. I was trying to track back how many times I cried during my first feeling of this movie. <laughs> I think it was six times that I cried. Uh, Peter, I have to admit that when I first saw your reaction uh, <laughs> that you that you cried multiple times, I sort of internally like rolled my eyes a little bit. Like, oh, people on right, Twitter were he... making fun of me hardcore, and then I like... mean, I I didn't feel the need to make fun of you to your face. I just thought about it and and i was like all right P- peter's a bigger marvel fanboy than i am so there's no way that i'm gonna cry that many times in this movie and i pr- i lost count of how many times it was probably around the same as you though and so i was like son of a bitch this movie got me like the, all of the emotional <laughs> moments worked so so well i'm i'm so shocked this, that this movie was so satisfying and i think one of the most surprising things about the emotional nature of this film is sure there's there's moments where you know, someone dies and you're sad about that, or you're you're there's emotional reunions that you're happy about that. But I think this might be the first time ever in a movie for me, and I gotta really think about this. I'm not sure if this is true, but as far as I can think of, that there was a moment so epic and so grand that I literally like started crying. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like uh, the event uh, when he says Avengers assemble and all the mm-hmm. portals open, I was just like crying out of happiness of like just how amazing this moment is so yeah that moment got a um i didn't cry at that moment but there was a grown man next to me who was fist pumping (laughs) the entire movie but when that moment happened i could hear him sobbing out loud and there was and there was a little kid in front of me who who was like like his mom couldn't try to shush him but i get like he couldn't like scream like yeah like so it was just like this amazing reaction all around me and uh, I guess the biggest spoiler alert, the final shot of um, Steve Rogers and Peggy Carter dancing in their home in the past. Um, my wife, like, made sure she <laughs> – we didn't stand up from our seats until she had dried her tears and no one else would see her crying. It was just <laughs> – there was a lot of emotions in that theater. And, and the I thing guess, is – oh, go ahead. Uh, so what's amazing about this movie is that even though the MCU has had you know ups and downs, I mean, good movies and bad movies – this one makes the entire experience, makes 11 years worth of movies, all the lows and the highs, all feel worth it. Even Thor The Dark World feels <laughs> worth it now. It does. I actually want to go back and revisit that movie after seeing, which is kind of cra- crazy. Um, <laughs> you know, let's jump into this. Let's get into our topic because we're probably going to have a bunch of spoiler discussions of Avengers Endgame. But uh, today I wanted to gather to talk about the characters of this movie uh, you know, w- talk about where this leaves them, but maybe even as a backdoor way of us talking about the arcs as a whole. And I think we have to start that discussion with the man himself, Tony Stark, who started it all with Iron Man. Um, 
and uh, meets his ultimate fate here, right? Yeah, and one thing I want to point out uh, about this is uh, Slash Film contributor uh, Sidhant Adlaka has been doing this amazing series for us called Road to Endgame, where he's been analyzing all films in the series in very in-depth ways, reading up on you know religion and military funding and all this stuff. One thing you pointed out that really blew my mind wide open is that when people compare Tony Stark to, to Stephen Strange, Doctor Strange, they always say, oh, they're both arrogant, smart guys who really what they do. But what he pointed out to me, and I think this is completes Tony's arc, is that Doctor Strange is a learner. He learns things, he incorporates it into his life, and then he and he is always feeding himself more knowledge. And he's arrogant, but it's a part of a quest for knowledge. Whereas Tony Stark is the smartest man in the world, and his arrogance is about his self confidence, what he can already do. So whereas Doctor Strange's journey is a, pro- a process of learning, Tony's journey has been a process of making mistakes and trying to fix those mistakes and making more mistakes. So Tony's arc, you know, is from a guy who makes his biggest makes a big mistake of selling weapons, then making Ultron, and then starting the Civil War, and he is always trying to do the right thing, but his inability to learn and his inability to sacrifice uh, and look at himself in perspective is entirely about you know it leads to him failing constantly. So the final moment where Doctor Strange, who's like him, his mirror opposite. Says, like makes it clear to him, you need to die in order to save the universe. Tony Stark finally learns what Doctor Strange has always known, even though they seem so similar. Hmm. That that is a good reading, and, and we should talk about you know Iron Man. Uh, in the original Avengers, he saw you know what was out there in space. He saw you know this alien invasion on Earth that gave him some PTSD and led to him creating Ultron. Or what what happened with Ultron? And uh, Tony talks about that in this movie, like you know, hit him his visions. He had these visions of what was coming with Thanos, and he tr- wanted, you know, you know, he, he did it the wrong way, as you said. <laughs> but his, his idea was to create this uh, security system around Earth that would protect them from any dangers from afar. Uh, I think probably for me, one of the most interesting moments in this film with Tony is him. Well, he he comes face to face with Howard Stark, his father, and in that moment, I think he realizes that he's been trying to be like his father, and he doesn't want to be. Is that is that a good reading of it? Yeah, I think it's a combination of that and him realizing his father, this titanic figure in his life, who he's always tried to live up to, and he always imagined is sneering down at him was just another guy with a job with the same fears he has. And that, you know, it's a combination of both those things of realizing that his father was as fundamentally flawed as he was. And he's his father's son for better and worse. Yeah. That's kind of how I looked at it is like it, yeah. it humanized Howard in a way that Tony has never seen before, like being on his level like that, talking with him as if he's a colleague instead of, you know, under the, the shadow of his legacy as he was as a child, you know, in that dynamic um, allowed him to, see his dad's uh, uncertainties and fears and and I, I think it gave him the freedom to be a person it gave tony the freedom to be a person instead of trying to be a figure himself you know trying to live up to his dad's legacy for sure and and there's also this movie uh, th- this moment in this movie obviously they have given tony a daughter named uh, morgan h stark and uh he has a family life. He's one of the lucky ones, as uh, Pepper Potts says in the movie. 
and at one point he, he you know, it just like a, a couple minutes he figures out time travel, which is a little <laughs> bit ridiculous, but whatever. I uh, figures out time travel and he goes to propose the idea to Pepper Potts, and he's there in that moment, hoping that she is going to talk him out of it. And it's such a tragic moment uh, if you, if you see this film multiple times. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's man, seeing Tony with a kid and seeing like that he's actually a good father, despite his fears, and seeing happy with Pepper, all the things that he's wanted for his entire life, being born out of tragedy. I mean, there's a few movies in this series where, where it can be argued that Robert Jr. is on autopilot, but there's a reason. But this entire series is successful because people fell in love with this character and the way he portrayed him. And, and Rob Dungeon is aware of that. And in these scenes, you know, he's reminding us that he's not just Iron Man. He's an incredible actor. Yeah. Um, okay. So Tony, Tony dies. Um, but this is the Marvel cinematic universe. This is a, you know, a comic book property. People have died before and been brought back. What is the chances that we see Tony ever again? I hope zero. Right, Ben? I think so, too. I mean, I, I think that would be uh, really damaging to this movie's legacy. Like, looking back on – it would just undercut the emotional power of this film. And, uh, you know, Marvel has had their issues with deaths before, uh, both in the, of course, both in the comics and in the movies thus far. But uh, a lot of those have been sort of temporary fake-outs. You know, I'm thinking of, uh, of Samuel L. Jackson in Captain America, The Winter Soldier, for example. But, like, these – those movies didn't necessarily they never brought Coulson back in the movies and I think that's illustrative of what we're talking about here right because if that happened that would undercut the power of 2012's The Avengers and they Kevin Feige is smart enough to know not to make that mistake I think he committed I think he laid down the (laughs) I was about to say laid down the gauntlet he he uh I think he he committed to a decision here and decided that this is the end for Tony Stark um and maybe you could do something in a prequel or of course like any of the Disney Plus stuff you know anything um that takes place before the event here but I feel like this is like the hard out for Tony's storyline. See, that's what I was going to suggest. I was going to say that I don't think we're going to see Tony Stark being uh, ever being brought back from the dead. But I think we might see holograms of him, like messages he has left. I, th- uh, You know, those like 3D like holograms that we mm-hmm. saw like at the end of the movie. I think maybe we could see uh, Robert Downey Jr., uh, his voice as Tony Stark playing like an AI, kind of like Jarvis or... Something like that. Like, I feel like there there might be some kind of, like, role for him there, but without him being alive. There was there's a character in modern Marvel comics named uh, Riri Williams. And uh, a couple years ago in, in the comics, Tony Stark died. And Riri is this genius kid, this black teenager, who builds a Iron Man suit in her garage. And um, she gets access to an AI that's programmed by Tony Stark's mind. So her Jarvis in her suit is Tony Stark is an AI. And naturally, Tony Stark comes back late, a few years later, you know, as a um, as 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 a clone of a younger clone <laughs> of himself with his with his memories all intact. Long story, but if they ever wanted to, like, you know, tell Riri Williams a story, you know, which is sort of Spider Man as Spider Man meets um, uh, meets Iron Man, they could it could easily have Robert Jr. being you know the holographic AI mentor to her and actually draw that from the comics. 
I just hope it never gets as convoluted as the comics. <laughs> we should talk about uh, there was someone at Tony's funeral at the end of the movie, which, by the way, I guess was shot during the weekend. They did that Vanity Fair Marvel 10 years uh, photo shoot. I so, was thinking that when I was yeah. watching it because I was like, this is the perfect opportunity because everybody is here. <laughs> yeah, no, that was not a camera trickery of any kind as far as I know. All those people were actually there and they actually shot it from what I understand – um, as a funeral and as a wedding. So uh, that was one of those deceptive moves by the Russos to protect the secrets um, and uh, not spoil Endgame. But um, there was one person at this funeral that the first time around I was like, who is that kid? So, uh, Ben, who is that kid? That kid is Ty Simpkins, who is the, the young boy in uh, Iron Man 3, if you remember. I think his name is Harley in that film. And um, he's the kid that, like, when Tony crash lands in Tennessee in Iron Man 3, um, he's, like, a sort of a young inventor himself. His name is his character's name is Harley Keener. And um, he sort of helps Tony overcome some of his panic attack moments caused by that PTSD in, in the Battle of New York. Um, and because of the five-year time jump and the fact that that kid was and, and you know, iron man 3 came out when <laughs> in 2013 i think and and yeah because it was like the first movie right yeah. after the the original event avengers so that was you know six years ago and you've got a, a five-year time gap in there but just the the six-year aging of ty simpkins as an actor i mean i remembered him as like that kid and he looked very similar in Jurassic World which was 2 years later as like a floppy haired little kid but he's grown up so much he's had such a a drastic uh, a growth spurt that it, it, he just looked unrecognizable to me but yeah that's him but it it totally makes sense that he would be there um I know when they first announced they were doing a Spider-Man movie in the MCU I I theorized that they should have made him Spider-Man which um, could have been interesting. I, I guess they went the same way, but with like a little bit older and Tom Holland, who is probably a better actor. Um, but, uh, do, do we expect to, like, could he take on the Iron Man persona, Jacob? I don't think so. I, I think they're done with Iron Man for a bit. I mean, I think they, they reached a point with Iron Man's suit and with technology and what he's capable of being on screen. That I think we're all just ready for different types of heroes. Look at the yeah. new generation coming of Captain Marvel, Black Panther, Doctor Strange, and their powers are so different than the first generation Avengers. I think we just we were all ready to move on and see different kinds of heroes doing different kinds of things. Okay, let's talk about Captain America, Steve Rogers, who in this movie doesn't die, but uh, I guess his story is comes to an end. Yeah, I, he he retires. He steps away from superhero life, goes back in time, and gets. Guess that last dance we were promised in First Avenger, and everybody cries. By the way, I love how everybody was theorizing that he was going to die and Tony was going to live, and it, it was the complete opposite. But um, <laughs> so uh, Steve Rogers in this movie kind of uh, he, he gets uh, to actually live his life with Peggy Carter. He gets to go back in time and uh, experience that uh, married life, I guess. Um, outside of the, the superhero world. Like, so w what is he doing there, Jacob? Is he just like inside the house and not leaving the house and just like, <laughs> uh, nobody knows he exists and not fighting any crime, even though he knows there's, you know, big things happening outside those walls? I like to imagine that Captain America spends most of the rest of his life, uh, living in, living in domestic bliss 
and occasionally every couple of years gets called out retirement for a big mission, which we'll get to see in various Disney Plus specials. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I do. I, I like the idea of um, after a life of selfless service, Captain America, Steve Rogers uh, gets you settled down, whereas Tony Stark has to make the ultimate sacrifice and learn his final lesson, whereas Captain America gets rewarded for his for always doing the right thing. And, you know, nice guys finish last uh, in his case, but he did finish. Yeah, it's sort of about him and Tony Stark being able to rest. I think Pepper Potts says as Tony is dying, you know, you can rest now. And for Steve, it's like he's like you just said, Jacob, he, he spent his whole life in service and he's able to finally you know, take a break for once as well. Okay, we have to talk about the future. You mentioned Disney Plus. We know there is a Falcon and Winter Soldier series coming to Disney Plus, and we'll talk about that later. But I'm wondering, is there a role for Steve Rogers in that? Like, I know there were there were rumors that Disney was trying to sign um, Chris Evans to a contract to direct episodes of that series. And uh, could he possibly appear as the guy that's like, uh, you know, overseeing the missions of Falcon and Winter Soldier? Uh, That would be close to the comics. Uh, I guess maybe a decade ago, uh, C. Rogers became an old man due to losing his uh, powers, long comic books, of course. And um, and, you know, he can no longer fight and be in battle. You know, he would be on the shield helicarriers and he would be strategizing from a distance and calling the shots for the Avengers, even though he wasn't fighting himself. So I can imagine him being like maybe not in every episode, but maybe the guy who like gives the old man who gives Falcon and Winter Soldier their missions and could go on from there. I mean, it would be a good use of Chris Evans. It keeps him in the universe, and I think everybody would be happy to see old man see Rogers for a bit. Should we address the time travel of this movie in this podcast, or is that uh, going to get too? You wrote an entire article about this, Peter, and it goes into great detail. <laughs> and I think we should save that for its own podcast because that's okay. a whole other thing. We will, but I, I will say here that I think Steve Rogers is the only thing that breaks the time travel of this movie, the time travel logic. But we we have also come up with a reason that it doesn't. But uh, look for that <laughs> on Monday. Um, okay, let's move on to the Hulk, Bruce Banner. Uh, he has, uh, had a huge arc over these films. I mean, obviously he started as Ed Norton and, and then, uh, <laughs> you know, they swapped the actors as they did with Rhodey. And, um, he has been grappling with, uh, should, you know, with trying not to break out into the Hulk. And now in this film, he has accepted the fact and the two are one as smart Hulk. Yeah, I, I love this. I think back to his, his the best line from the original Deven, uh, The Avengers, which was you know him turning around saying, "That's my secret, Captain. Uh, I, I'm always angry." And the idea that um, it's been leading to this. It's been leading to the fact that um, if he's always angry, it means the Hulk is always there and he's never going to be separate from him. So him making peace with both halves of himself and ending and ending this movie, you know, still as a hulked out scientist and being able to make make the best of both worlds is a route that this character gives him closure. I don't know if we'll see more Hulk in future movies or if we'll see much at all, uh, because I don't know where else, what else you can do with him. But seeing Bruce Banner stable and happy uh, and like living a life where he's taking selfies with people who are Hulk fans is <laughs> was really satisfying. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, too, when I was watching it. Like, I'm not sure dramatically what else there is to do with the Bruce Banner character, because it seems like all of his issues have been resolved. That's like the big thing with Hulk is that that divide that duality that he's constantly battling with inside but once you resolve that once you you come to the conclusion that 
uh, it's better to have both in your life. I'm not sure. I mean, you can't go back from there, right? Because that doesn't make any sense. And then what, you know, you, you can't really necessarily send him off to do um, Ragnarok level adventures, at least in the same way. Maybe he could team up with the Guardians or something and and show up in future movies as like an assist kind of thing. But for him to have any sort of uh, impactful solo presence in any of these movies, I, I just don't see it anymore because I feel like all the, the dramatic narrative storytelling ground has been mined for him. I mean, yeah. not, to jump, not to jump forward too much, but, like, there are certain major characters in this movie whose arcs are deliberately left dangling, where they give them new information, new motivations, and new, like, stuff to battle. So when the movie ends, you know, oh, we're going to follow the character for sure. But with Bruce Banner, the movie still ends with him having completely resolved everything. Well, th- I mean, Tony Stark's death does leave a space open in the Avengers um, lineup for someone who's smart, who can create the technology that these people need to use. So, I mean, he could always serve the purpose of like, uh, who is that in the James Bond movie that like, uh, uh Q. 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 Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not the biggest Bond person. No, that's all right. I just imagine that would be Shuri's job from here on out. I think black Panther is going to be the new Iron Man on the team personally, but she's, she's, yeah. she's all the way in Wakanda though. Like that's like yeah, all the way in a different country. They have planes, <laughs> yeah. but I, yeah, I guess he could serve sort of like a beast role from the early X-Men movies where he just doesn't really leave the lab. It doesn't really participate <laughs> in like the battle stuff, but he's just like cooking up strategies and, and like scientific solutions to problems in, in a lab setting. Maybe oh, speaking of that, I, I love that scene when they first travel back to New York and he does his like begrudging <laughs> smashing of the car. <laughs> it's really funny. And he's so embarrassed of himself as the old Hulk. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Um, okay, let's talk about Thor. Let's move on to Thor. Uh, he, you know, I think in many ways, if you look at if you look back at Infinity War, that is two people's movies. It's Thanos and it's Thor's. And if you you watch that from the perspective of Thor as the protagonist of that movie, you know, it all comes down to him appearing in Wakanda, that arrival with Stormbreaker, and him losing. And this movie is all about. Uh, how that has affected him. You know, he has uh, become Fat Thor now, which I (laughs) I think is hilarious. And I'm so glad, by the way, that they didn't just correct that somehow. Yeah, I was worried that too. He, like, flexed super hard and his fat goes away. I was really worried about that. (laughs) Although when he does become the God of Thunder at the the end of the the final battle, like, it, it seems less obvious that he's fat. So maybe, like... Yeah, he's, he's like, like armored up. Yeah. Maybe he's got bigger it, armor or something. It's, it works for me because it looks like a big bear of a dude instead of a sleek, you know, athletic dude. So it, it all works for me still. Yeah, so uh, so in this movie, what is his arc? Oh, man, his arc is learning is learning that he has a lot to learn and learning that he's uh, maybe not ready to take on the leadership roles and that maybe uh, it's time for him to go out and find what his purpose is. And that's where we leave him we leave him ready to co-star in Guardians of the galaxy volume three right ben yeah yeah totally and i i loved that dynamic like like you're saying peter i think this movie also is so much about thor's journey and you know from the looking back on the thor that was first introduced in the mcu you never would have thought that he would have been the type of character to be able to pull something like this off. But I think Ragnarok opened that character up in so many ways, not just 
um, you know, the, the obvious comedy aspect of it, but because it introduced that comedy side of him, it somehow increased the gravitas of all of the dramatic stuff that Chris Hemsworth is also really good at delivering. And it just, it reshaped that character in such a drastic way that all of this, you know, works and just makes a lot of sense now. Yeah. And his characters have all been largely about him trying to take on that responsibility that had been, uh, presented on him. And th- this, at the end of this movie, he is kind of foregoing that and being like, I want to do what I'm going to do. And actually, th- that's something I wanted to ask you about because I think one of the only, th- uh, I do have a couple nitpicks with this movie. And one of them, uh, is Valkyrie. The thing that happens at the end with Valkyrie. And we can talk about her in depth, uh, in a second. But I'm wondering, like, if it kind of feels to me, even though that she has kind of risen to this leadership role in New Asgard, which is kind of the sad fishing town, um, <laughs> that uh, he's kind of like, oh, here, here's my, uh, you are now the king, I don't want it anymore. And it, it feels kind of like a disservice to Valkyrie, who I always imagined would be one to pick up the hammer. I, I get the, the whole hammer thing. Uh Sidebar: Cap picking up the hammer in the final battle is incredible, but um, I I like this because oh, yeah, we didn't even talk about that. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll <laughs> back in a second. But yeah. uh, the reason I like this, and the re- uh, and I get where you're coming from entirely, Peter. The reason I like this is that we get the impression that Valkyrie's actually been running things for the past five years. She's been in charge of New Asgard, and Thor's been a figurehead, the guy who gets the title, but you know, as she said, only comes out to get his booze to so go back inside and keep getting drunk and self pity. Um. <laughs> So it is this part of Thor's journey is recognizing I don't need this title. I can let the title go because somebody better than me has taken it. And I, I think him acknowledging that is a huge step forward for a guy whose first movie was entirely about how he was ready to be king, even though he was as far from it as possible. Now, him acknowledging that, you know what? I need more time. I, I'm not ready, so I'll give it to the, the lady who's much older than me and knows what she's doing is, is a really in in line character choice for him. And yeah. I love, by the way, that... Thor's whole storyline, uh, the especially the part when you, you first sort of meet up with him, when you discover that he's just been drinking and whatever, that, that whole thing is just such a funny inversion of Aquaman, where you've got this, this character who is like a huge, um, essentially a god figure who... <laughs> Who is like in living in the sleepy seaside, gorgeous little town, and is guzzling beer left and right? But Jason Momoa is just like ripped and rippled, and and uh, Chris Hemsworth is just like a blubbering mess playing video games with Korg and Meek all day. Man, I, I love how the, the Rooster Brothers and the, and the screenwriters, uh, Peter, what are their names? Help me out, uh, Marcus, oh, and, Marcus McFeely? and McFeely. Yes, thank you. Um, what they do here with Thor is they manage to take funny Thor from Thor Ragnarok where he was just so goofy and was really played up Chris Hemsworth's strength, which is to be funny and managed to, as Ben talked about earlier, uh, merge it with pathos so that he's clearly the same Thor from Thor Ragnarok while still being the same Thor from Thor one and two while still being this new hybrid character who somehow encompasses it all. And it's a testament to the writing, the directing and Hemsworth that they managed to finally find the sweet spot of what Crimsworth, what Hemsworth can do as Thor, and that's why it's so exciting to see him alive and going on a space mission. Because I'm really excited to see this Thor going forward. And I think the Russo brothers and Marcus McFeely need some credit here because this movie goes on these wildly like tonal shifts from you know we're making you know we're laughing at the comedy of Thor being fat to Thanos being mentioned and. 
it becoming like this emotional sad uh moment like mm-hmm. in it, it, he, they do that a lot with this character and i i thought it, it was really well done uh one other thing i wanted to mention is on set on like uh the sheets and stuff to uh they didn't have Chris Hemsworth's name. He was codenamed Lebowski, which is a reference to the uh, the uh, Tony's joke uh, in the film. So uh, l- l- let's talk. L- let's move back to the hammer. Let's talk about uh, what they what they called on set. Uh, hammer and shield was the sequence. Uh, what do you have to say about this, Jacob? Because like they have been building up to this for some time in the MCU. Look. Um... I'm an easy mark. I'm, I admit it, but this, mo- this moment made me happier than anything has in a long time. I, I know they've uh, Cap has wielded the hammer in the comics before, and they hinted at this in Age of Ultron, where he managed to lift the hammer like it's a quarter of an inch. Uh, but Cap being worthy, what, why uh, was so- why wasn't he worthy then? But he's worthy now. I, that's a good question, and the only thing I have to do- say is that. When he was trying to lift, lift before he was trying to lift it at a party, you know, for selfish reasons, at, at, at where he was having a good time, here he lifted the hammer in service of the universe to go into a life or death battle, and I think that's why. I also think like maybe something has to do with like him knowing uh, that information about uh, Tony's father's death, like uh, in not being honest about that might mm. be keeping him from reaching his full potential. And, and we should also mention that like I, I think. Some fans out there that are like, you know, uh, that don't read the comics and probably don't watch these films over and over again will think that th- how is Captain America picking up the uh, the hammer and using the the superpowers of the God of Lightning? Like, I thought Thor was the only one that was worthy. So can you explain that? No, it just no? looks cool. And I'm for it. <laughs> I thought it was like that. Um, Odin says that anybody that is worthy, like it wasn't just one person. That's what I, I I remember, but yeah, it was something about anybody who's worthy can wield the powers of Thor or something yeah. like that, or, or something. So yeah. I guess that's how he's like imbued with the abilities to use the lightning and and stuff like that. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Okay, let's uh let's move on to Valkyrie. Let's talk about Valkyrie because I met I mentioned her. Um, in this movie, we get to see her riding her Pegasus. Uh, which is very cool and like something I didn't expect to see in this movie. Um, what what is uh what is her arc been? I mean, I guess we kind of went over it. She's kind of adopted the leadership role of this community, uh, and before she was just a a warrior. I mean, her arc is that she gave up the life of uh, servitude to go off and live a life of being a mercenary, yeah. and now she's been drawn back in and she's uh, taken up. The old responsibilities. I mean, after being with Thor and saving the Asgardians, uh, she has resumed duties that uh, she lost faith in, you know, God, a thousand years ago, I think they say. And so I'm really hoping they get around to making a Thor 4 or the all-female Marvel character movie they've been pitching about for a while because I would really like to see Queen Valkyrie, uh, her next chap- her next chapter. I really want to see more of that. Would that film be called Thor 4, or would it be called Valkyrie, or how would that even work? That's a good idea. I I, I know that we ran a story, because Tessa Thompson, who plays Valkyrie, had, uh, said in an interview that Taika Waititi, who did Thor Ragnarok, has pitched ideas for Thor 4. So, I don't, I don't know, especially since Thor is now part of the Guardians of the Galaxy. I feel like in the same way that Hulk was added to Thor Ragnarok, I think we're going to see Valkyrie and Thor kind of bounce around wherever they're needed, and I really hope that they get you know as juicy roles in other corners of the franchise as Hulk and Ragnarok. 
Okay, let's move on to Black Widow, Natasha Romanoff. Uh, she was introduced in Iron Man 2, uh, kind of in a small role, and uh, she was, uh, what is she, like a black ops uh, spy? Is that how you just describe yeah, her? Spy, assassin. Assassin, yeah. And uh, so, someone that was a loner that didn't really have many relationships or ties. She did have, you know, a working relationship with Clint Barton, who plays Hawkeye. And uh, in this film, because of the snap, or I mean, actually before the snap, she became part of something bigger. She became part of the Avengers. And because of the snap, she had to elevate herself to uh, a role of leader. We see her in one scene, basically controlling everything from Avengers headquarters, uh, having this meeting with the, the hologram holographic displays with the, the Avengers who are around, not just the world, but universe. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, and she seems, uh, to be really upset over what, what has happened to Barton. So, uh, what is, what is the arc of her character in this movie? I think back to her dialogue in the original Avengers, where she talked about having a lot of red in her ledger that she needs to mark out, meaning she's committed a, a number of atrocities that she needs to make a right for. And so I think her seeing Clint, you know, Hawkeye, become the kind of person she used to be, uh, and now that, she, that she's like completely moved on from, is damaging in a way because, you know, they were in this together. They were the normal ones. They were the buddies. They were the human beings amongst gods and monsters. And now here they are, here they are him having reverted back to the kind of person that she's escaped from. And I'm reminded of the, also reminded of the scene at the end of The Winter Soldier, where uh, Black Widow releases all the Hydra documents and a bunch of, like, top-secret government information into the wild to expose the conspiracy and that begins a new arc of the spy becoming transparent. And her arc concludes here where, one, she dies selflessly to help save the universe. And two, when we first meet her, she's a politician. She is organizing things from afar. She's running the team. She is being transparent, open, and concerned for everyone else as opposed to working in the shadows. So her transformation is about you know completely letting go of that old life while Hawkeye slips back into it. Yeah, and we're, we're seeing the sadness there. Uh, we... You know, once the plan becomes clear, she takes on that uh, the mission of her and Barden going to Vordemir. Is that it? Voromir, I Voromir. think. Um, yeah. And they uh, are going there to get the Soul Stone. So uh, th this creates an interesting situation where one of them needs to be sacrificed because to get the Soul Stone, you obviously need to make a sacrifice of the the one you love the most i guess um and both of them i guess you know clint who we can talk about in a second actually you know let's, let's talk about clint uh clint who you know lost everything i i asked the russo brothers uh before i saw this movie who is the main character of this film and i think you could make two arguments here i think you could make the argument that it could be iron man or actually three arguments you can make iron man you can make captain america or you can make hawkeye and I, I feel like the the argument at Hawkeye is that it begins with his point of view, his perspective of the snap. And uh, he goes on a, a quite an emotional journey in this film from losing everything to, uh, you know, basically changing his entire persona and becoming Ronin. And by, by the way, that how awesome was that that fight sequence in Tokyo? That was like one single shot. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not always big on the Russos' action sometimes, but they that that one knocked out of the park. Yeah, and um, 
And then obviously all leading up to this moment between Black Widow and Hawkeye um, in the Soul Stone. Uh, ben, what do you have to say about this? So this is, I think, one of my only uh, quibbles with the movie. I, I really enjoyed most of the film and, and thought that almost everything was executed really, really well. The Soul Stone uh, conundrum was the one thing that I, I didn't fully buy because I felt like the movie, like you said, Peter, it opens with Hawkeye and they spend so much time on the transformation of that character throughout this film, how he's been emotionally impacted from losing his whole family. And you you get the sense that he should be the one to go over the edge at the end or not at the end, but on Vormir or whatever. And for Natasha to do it, it just I feel like maybe they didn't quite lay the same narrative track there. Like you do get a couple scenes of her sort of hanging around Avengers HQ and, and talking about how this has affected her, but it just, it didn't land with me in the same way. And, you know, I, I appreciate the, uh, sort of ridiculousness of the two of them, like fighting to be the one to do it. Um, and like the, uh, almost like the cliffhanger reference of, of her falling through his, his hand. Um, once they're over the edge of the cliff, like it, it visually it's all well done, but just emotionally, I wasn't fully convinced. It, it sort of felt like a contractual thing. Like, okay, this is a way for us to wipe Scarlett Johansson off the table here um, and, and move on with her character and leave Renner around in case we want to use him for something. But I don't know, that that moment just didn't land for me. But I think this is probably one of the most surprising moments because everybody knows there's a Black Widow movie in pre-production right now. So what do we think that's going to be? Like, I mean, she, she dies here, and I think um, Red Skull basically says that you know, this is an everlasting decision. But he also says there's a soul for a soul. So there's some point that Steve Rogers is going to have to go to this planet and actually come face to face with Red Skull, which is actually kind of an interesting situation that we'll never see, and give back the stone. And when he gives back the stone, does he get a soul back? How does that work? I don't know. The movie is not interested in that in any way, but I wish it, I, I don't know. It's long enough, I guess. So <laughs> over three hours, um, I mean, it's already pushing it. I'm not sure if they had time to get into that, but maybe they'll be able to explore that in some other property down the line. Jacob, is Black Widow dead? I think Black Widow is dead for good. And I think my, my pet theory, this is pure speculation, guys, is that the Black Widow movie will be a combination of prequel and sequel. With Scarlett Johansson returning in scenes set before uh, Endgame as Natasha Romanoff, and that the recently cast uh, Florence Pugh uh, will play the next generation of assassin spy Black Widow, who's maybe resolving something that she uh, that Natasha could not years earlier. That is my pet theory, because based purely on casting and based purely on the fact that Black Widow seems pretty definitively dead. Here's a question: We have introduced time travel into this universe. It, which is very dangerous. Uh, they they make it clear that uh, I think they're on the dock and they're having this conversation of, you know, why can't I think Thor brings it up of like, you know, let's just go back in time and save her. Um, why can't they do that now? Like, why can't they like we've seen Thanos past Thanos was brought into our current or 2023 and killed. So why can't, uh, you know, past Black Widow be be brought here from another dimension. It's part of me wonders that since uh, the the Gamora who was brought to 2023 is not the same Gamora that 
uh, Peter Quill was fell in love with and that she, you know, doesn't have the same memory. She hasn't gotten there yet. Uh, are they even rescuing the same person? I mean, yes, maybe technically, but it's not there, Natasha. So I, I that, that would be my guess. But the movie's also not interested in that. So I have a really hard time <laughs> coming up with an excuse. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough whenever you introduce these, like, powers that go beyond the you know the reality of the movie and actually speaking of that let's talk about captain marvel really quick because they they really built up uh that movie captain marvel on you know you're gonna want to see this movie because this character is going to be hugely instrumental in the end game and you know uh i i think even they released a trailer for Endgame right before Captain Marvel came out they had her at the end in that moment with Thor where she said where he says I think I, I like this one um so in this movie she is barely in the movie like is uh is this a problem with her being overpowered I mean she, she's barely in the movie but if you think about it on top of your like on top of your head she accomplishes a lot she saves Tony Stark uh, who is on the end of his life he's like you know minutes away from dying at the beginning she brings him uh, uh, him and nebula back to earth uh she goes and helps kill thanos uh she leaves and then at the end she she's responsible for taking down uh you know thanos's huge uh star destroyer type ship and uh also if she wasn't there thanos would have been able to snap so she does accomplish a lot, but she's barely in this movie. Is that a problem? I don't think so. This movie, I mean, there's a reason why the snap vanished all the newbies in Infinity War. This movie is a long celebration of the core cast plus Rocket and Nebula. Uh, the movie spends a lot of time with the original Avengers for a reason. And yet Captain Marvel gets a lot to do in the beginning and the end. And it's a lot of fun to see her kick ass. But I think having her around for the core of the movie would have undermined the fact that we're saying goodbye to the core Avenger team. And the movie knows very well we have another decade ahead of us of Captain Marvel, Black Panther, and, and, and Doctor Strange. So it lets them come in when they need to while making sure the focus is purely on the characters who are saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just worried about her future in this universe. Like, it just, it just seems so overpowered. But, uh, you know, when I talked to Feige about it, he said that they're gonna explore the uh the limitations of captain marvel is the way he put it um you know we were talking about uh hawkeye hawkeye is gonna have a tv show for disney plus uh ben i think you wrote about this for monday so what do we think that's gonna be in in the the shadow of this film because obviously he has a family so family man hawkeye is not that exciting and originally we had heard that kate bishop he was going to be training kate bishop but his daughter and the person we see him training in this movie is not kate bishop it's uh, his daughter and he calls her hawkeye so so what is the tv show yeah the the tv show according to an early report was supposed to be Clint Barton passing the Hawkeye mantle to Kate Bishop, who's the, a, fav, a fan favorite character from the comics. And um, but, but I don't know. I feel like with Natasha being, you know, giving up her life and that sort of hanging over Clint and him, you know, be, clearly being affected by the loss of one of his best friends in the world, that could maybe be the the inciting incident for him to sort of put down the bone arrow for good. Um, and, and that would 
maybe explain why he's deciding to pass the mantle on to somebody else. Whether or not that's actually Kate Bishop or whether that just ends up being his daughter Lila because, like you said, he refers to her specifically as Hawkeye uh, remains to be seen. But, you know, Marvel has has a history of doing this, Marvel Studios, I should say, where they take elements from the comics and just sort of tweak them a little bit to to fit the cinematic what they're doing cinematically instead of doing a direct adaptation. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't be outside of the realm of possibility for this character, Lila, the daughter to sort of take the Kate Bishop role. Uh, and maybe like they could save Kate Bishop for later on down the line or something, you know, if they, if they don't want to introduce her right away, um, it's still up in the air, but those are some possibilities. I do want to point out that, uh, Cassie Lang, Scott Lang's daughter, who's recast for this movie, her and Kate Bishop, along with other characters, form the Young Avengers in the comics, which is a really beloved team of teenage superheroes who have ties to like a lot of uh, other heroes. Like, There's characters who are, are either referencing other heroes with their costumes or directly have blood ties. So I, I'm wondering if they're, if they're casting these characters, like casting a Kate Bishop and casting a young, an older uh, Cassie Lang, so they can maybe give us a Young Avengers movie. That would be interesting. Okay, let's talk about War Machine, James Rhodes. Uh, he is, at the end of this movie, alive. Uh, he doesn't really have, like, a huge arc in this movie. He's kind of a supporting player. Uh, is his story still going? I think he's probably done avenging. I think uh, Don Cheadle's enjoyed the checks. We've enjoyed watching him. But I think as we enter the next phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I think War Machine is probably over and done with because his whole goal, his whole original goal in this universe was to be Tony Stark's, you know, bantering board. Tony Stark says something funny to Rhodey and Rhodey reacts. And that's kind of the foundation of, yeah. of why he's there. But Ben, do you see any room forward for Rhodey? Not really, except as maybe like the position of the the elder statesman, the veteran who may be able to provide some provide some wise counsel to the the younger class, as it were. Um, but so like, yeah, they could keep him around, and maybe he could just hang out with Hulk and whoever, whatever the other veterans are are still there. But um, yeah, dramatically, he's another one of those characters that I feel like has served the purpose that that he originally had. I do love the interaction he has with um, Nebula, where I mean, they're both people that are uh, kind of cy- cyborgs at this point, right? Like they're uh, altered with technology. And uh, he has that moment with her, like uh, telling her that we, we you need to make the best out of what the, the, the cards you've been dealt. And uh, I don't know. I, I just thought that was a nice nice moment there um let's talk about scarlet witch who in in you know she's dealt with a lot of deaths so far in the marvel cinematic universe we saw her introduced in age of ultron and she lost her brother and uh she ended up falling in love with uh vision who was a man slash android that was killed at the end of infinity war and thanos's uh step to get all the stones and she shows up at the end of this movie, you know, from the portals. She she shows up and uh, basically kick, kicks uh, Thanos' ass. Like, I, I think if you were going to s- say who did the most damage to Thanos, I would say it was Scarlet Witch. Yeah, I'd agree. Either him or Captain Marvel. But in any case... Seeing her enraged and reacting uh, to a death like that was something I kind of wished that we saw from Bruce Banner. One, uh, one of my quibbles with Bruce Banner is that a guy who loved Natasha so much only has one tiny moment of reflection, and it's actually with Natasha, which is nice. I'm sorry, it's actually actually with um, Wanda, which is nice. Yeah. Uh, but 
uh, to, to actually have the catharsis of an Avenger, avenge a loved one, uh, was something that the movie really needed in that climax after so much death. So this is another character, um, Vision. We don't think he is alive, right? Like we think he was killed in, in Infinity War. We were told by the screenwriters back then that every character that died in Infinity War died, and we don't think that includes the Dusted. And so far. That seems to be technically true, right? Yeah. Gamora died. Vision died. Um, who else died? Loki, Loki and Heimdall. Loki. Yeah. I Although mean, a I, new version of Loki may be out there now, but who knows? Yeah. So. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but Vision and Scarlet Witch have a TV show coming to Disney Plus streaming service called WandaVision. And uh, what is this going to be if Vision is dead? I mean, I guess Vision could still be alive. Like Shuri was uh, working on him before, you know, he was killed. So maybe she was able to download his complete consciousness somehow. That's my guess. Uh, They've actually kind of simplified Wanda's powers for the movies. I think they may actually expand them for the TV show. Her powers are not just telekinesis. They're... She warps reality. She can change reality at will. And I'm wondering, essentially, in the, in the comics, she used her powers to do, like, extreme things. Uh, if they will... The series will be about her trying to recreate Vision and maybe having the repercussions of recreating a dead loved one and realizing they're, that they're not the same person or something's wrong. Uh, my, my guess, because I think bringing Vision back as the same person, like, you know, oops, he's alive now, is a cheap shot and something that they've managed to avoid here at Endgame. So I'm hoping that WandaVision is, you know, something a bit crazy, a bit more far out. We'll actually explore the concept of of what it means to have powers where we can change reality and trying to fix that. Um, I know Elizabeth Olsen has given us a little bit of info on what this WandaVision TV series is. Ben, you have an article going up on Monday about all of this. What do we yeah, know? Yeah, she... She just said that the show is going to have a 1950s style aesthetic, um, which sort of plays into Jacob's theory about her maybe trying to, you know, either create a new version of Vision or once Shuri has has fixed the Vision that it's like the grayed out husk that we saw at the end of Infinity War. Maybe the two of them could just sort of, you know, 1950s aesthetic uh, conjures images of, you know, leave it to Beaver and, you know, sort of suburban lifestyle. Um, And it's possible that and Jacob could probably speak to this a little bit better. But I guess Tom King had a, a Vision comic book series that's sort of like this would be maybe like an inversion of that. Yeah, there's a uh, award-winning run on the Vision that's 12 issues long. It's brilliant by from writer Tom King. And the gist of it is that Vision moves to the suburbs uh, to work as a consultant in Washington, D.C., giving up superheroism. And he creates a robotic android family to give him uh, a domestic life. So I'm genuinely wondering if Wanda, if they'll take this basic premise but reverse it with Wanda trying to create a peaceful life with her, uh, lo- with, with her love of her life, uh, but you think in, in the comic things go very wrong for Vision, and I wonder if they'll go very wrong for Wanda. Hmm. Okay, let's uh let's talk about Falcon. Uh, Sam Wilson, who you know starts off as a friend of Captain America in what Captain America Winter Soldier. Yep. Yeah, and uh, he's running a support group. I think this might be the same support group that Captain America is running here in this movie maybe not uh and um he returns from the snap uh with the great uh on your left um and 
he at the end of this movie he is presented by old Captain America with the shield, which I'm kind of curious what your thought is on this, Jacob, because I'm I'm not a person that have re- has read anything Falcon in the comics, but it, it seems like he earned that shield way too easily, and also <laughs> it seems to me that he has no superpowers, and I want a Captain America that has some kind of super abilities. Uh, when I first left the theater, I talked to my wife about this. I'm, I'm just imagining old man Steve Rogers sticking at the shield, and he's thinking, okay, there's, uh, I know that uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier are going to be there. Whatever one approaches me first gets the shield. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I was, he's probably wondering, like, why didn't he give the Bucky, his oldest friend, who, who does have superpowers? But uh, when Falcon became Captain America in the comics a few years ago, the whole gist of it was, you know, he still has the wings, but he he represents America. He is a, he is a soldier who, who uh, fought wars and came home and has dedicated his life to helping other veterans. And meanwhile, uh, when a soldier who's also been Captain America in the comics is still Bucky, but he's still a brainwashed assassin with a lot to clean up for. So Falcon as Captain America will have to work five times as hard as Captain America to get the job done. But he represents the, he represents what, what, what Steve always strived to, which is, you know, the best of the United States, the, the best that a soldier can be, which Bucky really does not. Uh, and I'm ho- and if they lean on that and lean on the fact that being Captain America will be hard, then uh, I think it could be a really interesting direction. And we didn't mention the elevator scene with Captain America, call back to Captain America Winter Soldier, also directed by the Russo brothers. But there is that uh, great line that with Captain America saying, Hail Hydra, which is actually kind of a reference to the comic books. Yeah, there was a very divisive run a few years ago where Captain America was was turned into a Hydra agent through all kinds of cosmic uh, shifting around. But here, it's just it's. I think I had the biggest laugh last night in the theater uh, of everyone expecting that elevator scene to play out as a fight scene again, and Captain America just walks right out after saying the magic words. <laughs> and uh, what um, Winter Soldier like is. He really wasn't in much of this movie. Is there is there much to say here? No, he's Bucky. He's Bucky. Uh, he's it, tormented. He, it, he needs to get a haircut. It did seem to me when Steve Rogers was going to go back in time to return the stones that Bucky knew what was going on. Like, after seeing this movie three times, it, it's clear that he's the only one that gives him, like, a huge hug and says, I'm going to miss you. And, like, you know, he's going away for five seconds. Um, mm-hmm. it, it seems like Bucky gets it and like he even, you know, nods to, uh, Falcon when he's, uh, the old man's over there. Like, it seems like he, he was ahead of this whole, this whole story. That makes me feel better. Cause I was, I, I was probably was like really perturbed that, that, um, Bucky was, was not invited over to go, you know, have the reunion, but Steve already told him his entire plan, you know, earlier and they had a chance to, you know, say the goodbyes off screen. And I feel a lot better about Bucky not being present with Steve for that moment. By the way, uh, Ben, you had this theory in the chat, which I have adopted in my time travel article, about old man <laughs> Steve Rogers. I, I just thought we, we should relay it here. Yeah, uh, you know, so there, there's the scene where they go back to, I think it's 1970 or something at the um, Camp Lehigh, and they get the vials of Pym particles. And I, I just, you know, we were trying to figure out how uh, Captain America's uh, how old man Cap 
couldn't break the timeline, even though it sort of does. And I'm sure you guys will talk about this in a future episode of this podcast. But um, I don't know. I I was just like theorized, wildly speculating that maybe he grabbed an extra vial of pin particles and maybe... I, I I don't even know anymore, Peter. <laughs> to be honest with you, it's so it's so convoluted. Um, even my like attempt to try to work through it all uh, doesn't <laughs> doesn't even fully make sense to me. Yeah, but the image the image that you proposed is that of you know Steve Rogers, old man Steve Rogers, setting up a chair and watching from afar as <laughs> as this whole epic battle unfolds because he knows what's going to happen. He's lived through it, and he gets to you know enjoy it for once from the outside. Which yeah, I, he is he is the one person who knows exactly when and where this whole thing is going to go down. So unless he told other people about it <laughs> along the way, maybe he sold tickets and just made a boatload of money. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, Bucky and uh, Falcon, they are going to have a TV show called uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier, which I- I'm guessing could be retitled to. Captain America and Winter Soldier? Yeah, I was wondering about that um, because obviously Sam Wilson has the shield now. So it's either the early adventures of of Sam as Captain America or maybe it's like he has accepted the shield but hasn't fully accepted the role and and all the responsibilities that come with that. Maybe the show is going to be sort of a transition period from him you know, learning what his version of Captain America can be. Or Kevin Feige has also mentioned that some of the Marvel Disney Plus shows could be prequels. So theoretically, you could, you know, catch up with with him and Winter Soldier doing some previous adventures and and bantering and all that stuff uh, before the events of Endgame. Um, So I I don't really think that's going to be an option, but he did mention the possibility of some some of these things being prequels. So it it shouldn't be completely discounted. It it does seem to me like Sam Wilson accepts the shield, but he does not accept the role. Like he even says it feels like it belongs to someone else or something like that. I'm wondering if this show is going to be kind of the the arc of the show is going to be him coming to acceptance of this role and the the shield and everything it means. And by the next time we see him in the movies, it will be after that show. um, Right. And, you know, he will be actual Captain America. Yeah, and that's the thing about the shows, too. I think Feige has mentioned, like, you know, some of these, uh, the events of these shows will be able to sort of flesh out character moments and developments and arcs and stuff that won't necessarily be fully required if you just want to watch the Marvel movies. So this is the perfect example of that, right? If if they were to flesh out Sam's full acceptance of that role and then just pick up in the next movie, people who don't watch the show will just be like, oh, he was given the shield at the end of Endgame, and now he's Captain America, and and just, you know, make that leap that way. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to some of the more uh, smaller characters. By smaller characters, I still mean characters that have their own standalone films. But, uh, you know, this movie just has too many people to deal with. Let's talk about Black Panther. He doesn't really have a huge role in this. He leads Wakanda into that epic battle at the end, 
do we have a name for that battle, by the way? Like, I like calling, you know, the Battle of New York. Like, I like having some kind of point of reference, but we don't we don't really have a name, do we? I, I was suggesting the Battle of Upstate New York because that's where Avengers HQ is, and that's where <laughs> that's the setting for the whole thing. And as a as sort of a, a joke reference to the Battle of New York, I thought that that will maybe that's what I'm calling it until I hear an official source elsewhere. I like it. Let's go with that. Um, so at the end of this movie, we see Black Panther, Black Panther, and his other uh, Wakandan royalty, uh, Shuri, and whatever, uh, overlooking the Wakandan skyline. Uh, I, I I can't really even tell after seeing this for three times. Three times, like, has Wakanda been as devastated by the snap as the rest of the world? Like, it, it's very hard to see. Like. It looks like, I'm assuming it has, but Wakanda has a habit of doing things better than the rest of the world, so they've clearly cleaned the city up. But they're also celebrating because, you know, everybody's been unstapped. So. Yeah, and we should mention that even though they win in the end of this movie, the snap still happened. So there still is that five-year gap of, uh, you know, in what the after effects it has on this world, which I think uh, is going to come into play in these upcoming films. Uh, speaking of upcoming films, Spider-Man Far From Home is the next one. And I think some people are a little confused by the reunion between Peter Parker and Ned, which we'll, we'll talk about in a minute. But let's talk about Spider-Man's arc thus far in these films, Jacob. Uh, Spider-Man has learned that with great power comes great responsibility, Peter. That's, <laughs> um, no. But um, no, I, I, so far, you know, it's for him, it's been his main arc's been in Homecoming, which is where he went from having to earn his suit back. And here I feel like he, he's been less of having an arc in Infinity War and Endgame and more of being a device to get Tony where he needs to be. And that's fine because Tom Holland is so charming and so sweet. But he, seem, he exists purely to give something, to, give, giving, giving Tony the son he has yet to have. And, and then when he has a daughter, you know, he remembers Peter Parker. He, we see him pull that picture off the shelf. And, the, and like the guidance and love he's given his daughter is something that he finally gives to Peter in that hug on the battlefield. And so I think Spider-Man is very much serving Tony Ar- Tony's arc here. But I think that Tony's death is going to give Spidey one hell of an arc in Far From Home. Yeah. And, and Spidey's uh, dusting in Infinity War was the only moment in that film that uh, brought, or, you know, made me tear up. In this film, when it's reversed and he's talking to Tony and telling him he won, it's so crushing. Um And I think, you know, Far From Home is going to have to deal with this because not only did he provide Tony Stark with the son that he never had, but Tony provided Peter with the father he never had. Right. So um, how is that going to affect him in Far From Home? He, uh, you know, we know he's going on this uh, class trip. We see at the end of this movie him being reunited with Ned. A lot of people are confused with that. How are they both back in school? Uh I think that it's a little bit uh, confusing storytelling wise. The last time that Peter saw Ned was in that bus in Infinity War when Thanos's ship went over New York City. So they have been separated for some time, but both of them actually were dusted. So they are back in the same class with Zendaya and with Flash. And um, they were just, I guess, all lucky that they were all dusted. Yeah, that's the thing is like, the, you know, what are the odds that, 
uh, that Peter's best friends and the his colleagues in class were all dusted because it's half the universe and really half of them theoretically should have gone away. But the numbers just sort of fell in favor. So all of those characters could be reunited again and on the same page in uh, Far From Home because for everybody else, for half of Peter's school the half of the the class was still there. So theoretically they either continued with school and like graduated and moved on with their lives or just like all schooling came to a halt for five years while everybody was like, I, I find it that hard to believe. Yeah. So you, you have a feeling that like, you know, half the people that you've been going to school with for your whole life have moved on beyond you. Um, but it just, just so turns out, as we've seen in the trailers for Far From Home already, that MJ and Flash Thompson and Betty Brandt and Ned are all there with Peter. So you have to assume that they were all dusted and then re- restored, I guess. You know, we've talked about this on the podcast in the past, how the comic books have these big uh series that connect all the whole universe as a whole and it kind of puts these standalone stories to stop and then dramatically affects them in ways that kind of suck because you were into what the story was happening and it just seems like this you know foot just like came down and snopped stomped on the series that you're reading i i think this is probably the better way of doing it where that thing still happened but they can still go on with their plans of what they set up with these group of characters in this high school. Jacob, what do you think? Yeah, I think this is the, uh, if Endgame and Infinity War were the big, what's the big crossover event in the Spider-Man series with its own, you know, individual series. And this is the ideal scenario of that where you can know the little details and there should be a line of dialogue, but man, I can't believe half a class has graduated four years ago. Uh, but yeah, the platonic ideal is that after the crossover event, you can choose to keep in mind the big universe changes or you can disregard them and enjoy the story at hand. And I think that's going to be the process moving forward. And I, I really think they're going to pull it off because I I believe that there's uh, people who just watch Spider-Man movies should be able to watch Far From Home and totally follow and totally enjoy it, even though they may not get one or two lines of dialogue. That said, Kevin Feige has said that this is the last film in this phase, so it's not Infinity War. And Infinity War ends the Infinity Saga, but the, I, I guess Spider- or Endgame does. Or yeah, sorry, Endgame ends the Infinity Saga, but uh, Spider-Man: Far From Home is going to end this phase. So I'm wondering, is this going to be like one giant after credit scene? <laughs> I think it's going to be, from what we've seen in the trailer, it looks like it's its own thing, and it didn't even have any references at all yeah. to anything that, you know, any of the events that we've seen. You know, people were, were theorizing that it could even be a prequel, and I don't know if we fully know that, although Amy Pascal, the producer, I think has previously said that it's supposed to pick up a few minutes after the end of uh, Endgame. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to Doctor Strange. Uh, Jacob, I know he's one of your favorite characters. Can you talk about his arc thus far? Uh, yeah, he's my favorite Marvel superhero, and he doesn't get a lot to do here other than be really cool until the very end where he gives uh, Tony the – he puts up his finger to say one, as it referencing the one in 14 million chances to have to win this, uh, which Tony reads correctly and sacrifices himself. But I – even though there isn't a huge arc for Doctor Strange over Infinity War Endgame, it does continue where he was at the end of his solo movie, which was you know having – learned to accept death, accept pain, and accept um, his new role. And his new role is to safeguard the universe and safeguard, you know, this realm of existence. And him, you know, coming back and after giving Tony the, you know, prophetic, uh, you know, this is one way to do it, and making that clear to Tony, 
you know, it real seals the deal on Doctor Strange as being an incredibly powerful figure moving forward, even if it doesn't necessarily advance his character. You know, I, I know we did mention Captain Marvel earlier, but I'm I'm wondering, you know, at the end of this movie, we see her, she's gone through another haircut change. She, love it. Love it. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. I love the haircut. <laughs> no, I do too. Uh, I like it. I'm just wondering, what is Captain Marvel 2 going to be? Do you think that will be set in like, uh, you know, the 2000s before any of this? Or do you think we're going to see the years of her helping out the universe in the snap? Or, or is it just going to fast forward to, you know, 2024 after the events of the Infinity Saga? Ben, what would you rather see? I think I would rather see... Uh, her in like after the infinity saga just going out and helping the planets that you know that that need help um you know the idea of another prequel it works for wonder woman but i don't think you can apply that same thing to captain marvel i I don't think narratively we need to see any more of her before she meets up with the avengers and that team so i think i think she would be more interesting as a character having the full breadth of the experiences that we know that she's had, like for us to be able to follow her at that point. Yeah. Okay. I I buy that. Um, Let's move on to Ant-Man, Scott Wang. By the way, I thought it was so funny how, how many theories that revolved around how Ant-Man, what Ant-Man's been up to in the quantum realm, how he's going to escape the quantum realm. And, uh, you know, there's tons. You can go to Reddit and see thousands of different theories, and it all came down to be a rat. A rat <laughs> in the right place at the right time. And it, it, honestly, if you ask me, the rat is the true hero of this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love this. Be, uh, I, I love Ant Man. I love the way Paul Rudd plays him. And part of me is wondering if this is the last we see of him and the Wasp, because their movies were never huge moneymakers. And at the end of this movie, they're with Cassie. You know, together and happy, and there's not a lot of lingering baggage from those movies. So I asked Peter and Ben, "Is this the last we see Ant Man and the Wasp?" I feel like they would be really well served to, you know, as supporting characters in somebody else's franchise. I feel like I I, I want to see more of them, but I don't know if we need a full movie of them. Um, that being said, uh, Michael Pena, you know, you can always use more of him in the MCU. So I don't know, maybe maybe bringing those supporting characters into some other movie would maybe feel like too many uh, cameos or too many people crashing the party. But um, see, I, I don't know. What do you guys think? I, I want to see a Disney Plus show of uh, that con, uh, that uh, the business that Michael Pena is, what, what is it called? X-Con? Oh, yeah. X-Con. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I want to I see a sitcom of that. But I, I do think there's something more to this. Like you mentioned that Cassie becomes the young – What? who does she become? I can't remember her superhero name. I will Google it but she you said, guys give me some time. She's in the Young Avengers is what you said. Yes. And um, I think you know you could have Ant-Man and the Wasp as you know supporting characters in, in a film like that. I think that's uh, viable. And I think also that the Quantum Realm is not done with this universe. I think we're going to get more of that. So I think – there is a need to have them involved some way. Generally, it seems like Marvel is going with trilogies, right? Like, it seems like, except for someone like Hulk, <laughs> it seems like they are building trilogies of films. We're, we're expecting Guardians to end at three. Iron Man ended at three. Uh, you know, a Thor might go on, but uh, it seems like they're building tri- tri- trilogies. So I think we will get another Ant-Man film. Of some kind. 
Right. And for the record, uh, Cassie Lang uh, was introduced first as stature, referring to the fact that she can grow large. And uh, a few years later, uh, a decade later, um, her power she became more of a shrink-based uh, character, and she became Stinger. So I don't know if they'll use either of those names, but that's those were Cassie Lang's uh, superhero names in the comics. Okay, let's talk about um, let's go uh, cosmic. Let's talk about Star Lord Peter Quill. Uh, he in this film doesn't have like a huge role. We actually get to uh, visit revisit the opening scene from Guardians of the Galaxy, which I think is one of the funniest moments of this film of seeing him dancing from the third person point of view of not <laughs> yeah. being in the headphones. Um, and uh, you know, at, at stake, you know, he kind of cost us everything in the last movie, and uh, we don't see the weight of that on this character though. No, not yet, and I, I do wonder if that will manifest in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, uh, because the movie seems, seems to be setting up the Guardians going on a, on a search to find Gamora, since that's the screen he's looking at, at the very end. So, I would imagine that uh, Volume Three will deal with the fact that Quill let half the universe die, albeit temporarily, and you know he, uh, the love of his life is out there, but she's not the same woman, and you know but, it's going to be. But he this... did it for love, Jacob. He did it for love. <laughs> Did it because he did it because he's a terrible superhero. And that's why I love him. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that all the guardians are going to be on this big um, quest, and you know maybe his surrogate family of you know brothers and sisters, who no longer has a father figure in his life, are going to help him you know overcome the fact that he <laughs> really screwed things up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Gamora, uh, she died in the last film. She was the sacrifice that Thanos made to get the Soul Stone. In this film, she reappears as 2014 version of Gamora, who ends up going into the future and helping uh, future Nebula escape and comes in co- contact with Quill and actually like kicks him in the nuts. And uh, a funny scene, uh, we do see after uh, Tony snaps that uh, she's missing, right? So the question is, was she – like when Tony snaps, is he like, I'm, I want – all of Thanos's people to disappear. That would include Gamora, right? Yeah, but she's no longer Thanos's person. Yeah, she's, she she's, turned she's, on so. him at that point. I think. But, but how does he know that? He doesn't. But the stones know. The stone, yeah. stones know everything. So yeah. she's out there somewhere, and we're, we're assuming that Star Lord's going to have to find him. This is going to be the search for Spock, but with Gamora. Yeah, and I bet they're going to introduce some um, oh, goodness. Um, uh, Adam Warlock teased in Volume Two as a possible, you know, barrier on that journey for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, of course, is going to be there because Thor's part of Guardian now. That's going to be the best. I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm wondering if we're not going to get a Thor four proper. If we're just going to get the Ed's Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, <laughs> you know, third film. Uh, okay, let's talk about Nebula. I think that the opening scene in this film where she's with Tony on this uh, ship on the 22nd day of a journey and you know, they're barely surviving by the way, 22nd there's been 22 Marvel films. I think there's a connection there. Uh, that's my theory. Um, and she, I love her in the, these opening scenes where like she is playing this paper football game with Tony. And for the first time in her life, she wins something and she doesn't know how to react. (laughs) Um, yeah, I, I love Karen Gillan's Nebula. I, lo- I love her transition from being this tough, hard-ass, evil henchman to being like someone who loves her sister, and and even though she never stops being this, you know, uh, 
hard ass she is, um, have transitioned into a genuinely good person. And I, I think playing that balance of being somebody who is really gruff but has found room in her heart for love is actually a lot harder than it sounds. And I really, really like what they do with her here. Yeah, and there's also the shot with her and Rocket as uh, right after they get back to Earth and they, they hold hands. <laughs> it really really got me. Really got me. Um, okay, uh, Rocket. So so we think Nebula is going to join the Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, continuing their mission. I mean, we we don't think we see her at the end of the film. So we uh, we know that she's probably going to be in Guardians 3. Uh, Rocket is also going to be part of that crew. Uh, what... What did what was Rocket's role in this movie? I mean, he really had a, a little bit of a backseat here. Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess he. I loved the idea of, of during the time heist where he is with Thor and they go back to the the dark world setting and he's basically slapping Thor in the face and telling him to get his shit together. Um, I love that dynamic between them and and it seemed like they they started that dynamic in Infinity War, right? Like when they first met up and they went off on their side quest to to get Stormbreaker going. So I like the idea of Rocket and Thor being, uh, being friends and how that might like, um, how that relationship, their special new friendship might, um, provide some sort of threat to Peter Quill later. Like I, I, you know, the way that Quill and Thor, um, are always in constant competition with each other is just always hilarious to me. And the idea of all of these guys coming together in another guardians movie is, is really, really entertaining and, um, and like an exciting prospect. But in terms of like what rocket actually does in this movie, I guess he steals the ether from Natalie Portman off screen. And, uh, yeah, by Not the way, do much. we do we think that was actually Natalie Portman, or was uh, I mean from a new scene, or was that just old footage from Thor: The Dark World? I am almost certain that's a, a shot from Thor: Dark World. They just added a rocket into. Yeah. Um, okay, we have a bunch of people here that we probably can go quickly over: Drax, Mantis, and Groot. Uh, I mean, pretty much the same, right? They're part of the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy crew. We don't really learn much about them here. I'm actually kind of sad that we don't really get a significant moment of rocket and Groot being reunited we do have that moment during the fight but it feels like so uh willy-nilly yeah but we do get drax encouraging a knife fight and that's worth it yeah um and uh okay uh valkyrie we've already talked about uh let's talk about the uh the main people from wakanda like, uh, they don't really have, like, a significant part in this movie, as we mentioned with uh, Black Panther. But we do see this transmission in um, when Black Widow is leading the Avengers headquarters. She's having this uh, these transmissions from Avengers from around the universe. And she does have this conversation about uh, with Wakanda about um, there was some shifts underneath the ocean. And uh, they were talking about that it was just an earthquake. I know I've talked to my friend Sean Gerber, who play, who runs Marvel Studio News, and he actually theorizes that this is a subtle setup for Namor. Do you, Namor the Submariner, for people who don't know who that is, it's basically like Marvel's version of Aquaman. What do you think of that theory, Jacob? Uh, I think it's actually a good one. Uh, I, I really like Namor as a character and to keep you really fun as a villain in a new phase of Marvel movies. I think the one issue they have is, though, even though I'm pretty sure Namor's earliest incarnations may have come before Aquaman, I think. Um, it's going to invite inevitable Aquaman uh, comparisons because they're, they're both arrogant kings of Atlantis. 
uh, except that Namor does not like humanity and this and often wants to destroy them. But I think it's a really, really uh, fun idea. And the idea of Namor waging war on Wakanda in Black Panther 2 could be a really interesting uh, plot. You have King versus King with T'Challa versus Namor. But this is all speculation, albeit fun speculation. Yeah. So now we get into like the, the smaller roles. So we can go through this pretty quick. Uh, Nick Fury just appears at the, the end funeral. Is this going to be the end for him in the MCU? Oh, no. He's in Spider-Man. Far from oh, him. yeah. Yeah. Why am I forgetting that? Yeah, so we will see him uh, in the next movie. So there you go. Um, I was kind of disappointed to not see him. And I mean, Captain Marvel has that moment where she sees the screen and Nick Fury is missing. She realizes that he's been one of the ones that were dusted. And she is nearby on the porch with Nick Fury. But like, I wish we had a scene of like them being reunited after what we assume has been what, like 30 years or something like that? I mean, maybe she's come back to Earth in that time. I don't know. Um, but, I, but I was disappointed to see that we didn't get that. So um, Pepper Potts, she, in this movie, does don her own Iron Man suit in the final battle. Uh, this is something that she did before in Iron Man 3. Uh, after Tony's death, do you think she has a, there's a chance that she could be returning and taking on the mantle? Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow has said in press that she thinks she's done with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I get it. She's been doing this for 11 years, and Pepper has never played a, has played a major role in a few movies. But I know a lot of uh, fans, and some who've written for our site, uh, articles about this, have wanted Pepper in, actually in battle in a suit of armor for a long time. So I'm glad that happened. I wish it happened a little earlier, to be honest. By the way, we had that cool moment where all the female characters, like are in action together. It's like the ultimate fan service moment because logistically it doesn't really make much sense why they were all in one area of this battle. But you know what? I I get I, I clapped every time. Um Yeah. My my wife um grabbed my arm and shrieked oh not shrieked, whispered loudly in my ear, the ladies So <laughs> Now, uh, it hit the right notes for the right people. I'll leave it there. Yeah. I, I do want to ask Tessa Thompson mentioned this a few years ago when Thor Ragnarok that they approached, uh, Kevin Feige at the premiere with a bunch of the, the, the actresses from the Marvel Cinematic Universe basically demanding that they get their own female Avengers style team up. And he said in time or, you know, something's planned or something like that. It, it was this it? Is it just this moment or do you think we're going to get something bigger later on? Uh, I think we're talking bigger, right, Ben? I mean, this... God, I, I hope so. Although, like you said, Peter, it didn't really make a lot of uh, logistical sense for them to be there, so I'm not sure how you would how how you would lay a foundation for an entire movie for that to make sense, but, I mean, I'm sure... So you, do, of... you just uh, do a Why the Last Man uh, mashup where <laughs> all the men get dusted somehow. And... You mean half the universe disappears, Peter? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, I get, exactly. Exactly, Ben. Okay. Um, who else do we have? Happy Hogan. We're probably never going to see him again, right? Right. But his final moment with with Morgan, Tony's daughter, is really sweet. And a callback to the first film when he brings uh, – a return home from war, Tony, a bunch of hamburgers and fast food with him promising her some cheeseburgers. Yeah. Uh, actually, he is in the beginning of one of the trailers for Far From Home. So oh. we're going to at least see him <laughs> briefly. So uh, there we go. Then. <clears throat> Good. Uh, give John Favreau a couple acting paychecks. I think he's underrated as an actor. And I'm happy to see him in these movies. So keep it up. You know, uh, 
probably not worth talking about, but I'll say anyways, at the Avengers Endgame Junket, they made custom uh, t-shirts for anybody who attended from the character posters, and I got one of Rocket, and afterwards, I regretted not getting the character poster of Happy Hogan, of uh, <laughs> of John Favreau, because that would be my only chance to have a t-shirt with John Favreau on the t-shirt. Yeah, Peter, that, you, you messed up, man. You messed up big time. Yeah. Okay, uh, Hank Pym and uh, Janet Van Dyne we'll probably see in a future uh, Ant-Man kind of thing. Uh, we'll see Wong in uh, in the next um, Doctor Strange. Uh, Peggy Carter, she's dead, right? Yeah, she's dead. We'll never see her again, but but we know Cap could spend his life with her. It's all we need. What about Sharon Carter? Sharon Carter, like, that was her granddaughter? So is it a chance uh, that that was... Grand niece. Grand niece. Okay. So, uh, will she, like, will we see her again? I hope not. She's a wet blanket of a character and she only existed so so, so people wouldn't say Cap was gay. So I really, really dislike Sharon Carter. Yeah. Yeah, It seemed like the the MCU was embarrassed of her while she was in scenes. Like, they were actively embarrassed that she was being included in these movies at the time. So I'm sure that now that. You know that that now that Cap's story is concluded, there's no reason to bring her back. Yeah, um, the Ancient One. I mean, this is just a one and done. It was a fun thing to see her defending the uh, the building against the the Battle of New York, right? Yeah, I, I love that. I love the idea that the Avengers are off doing their own battle, but the other hidden corners of the MCU are still there, which means Ancient One battling aliens on the rooftop and. That cameo from Tilda Swinton, I mean, she's she's so good in Doctor Strange, and she's so good here, and in many ways, it's her choice that lets, you know, everybody win. She willingly gives up the time stone to Bruce Banner. Aunt May, um, it, who is actually dusted, according to the Russo brothers. Oh, okay, um, that's good to know. Yeah, she was dusted, and uh, so, but if you look at her in this funeral scene, she still looks like she's like 30 years old, because, I mean, that actress always th- doesn't age. So, Marissa Tomei yeah. is a beautiful woman. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> apparently, uh, you know, I'm guessing she was dusted for plot reasons, because if you had her not dusted, she would have had to deal with losing Peter for five years. Mm-hmm. And that would have been like a, a big change to that character. And this way, it just makes it easier for yeah. us. Yeah. So uh, Jane Foster uh, still not dating Thor, but like, could she come back or is it, is this the end for her? Natalie Portman is done so, and Thor is no longer on Earth. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, we we saw that Der- Doctor Eric Selvig was dusted. I was actually surprised not to see him in this movie, other than that one screen. Is there a chance that he will return? Uh, ben, are you a Doctor <laughs> Eric Selvig fan? Because I am. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, he's one of those characters. I don't think has he been on screen since the Avengers? Did he appear in anything? He was in Age of Ultron. Age of Ultron. Wow, I forgot about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I honestly, Jacob, I can't say that I'm a Doctor Eric Selvig fan. <laughs> so uh, well, I'll rephrase. I'm a, I'm a Stellan Skarsgård being silly fan, which means I'm a Doctor <laughs> Eric Selvig fan. So I, you know, I, I'd say bring him back for a couple cameo appearances. Keep keep Skarsgård alive in the MCU. I mean, now that you have like Bruce Banner serving the role of like science master and and you've you've got uh, Peter Parker in the MCU and you've got Shuri, you've got all these smart figures. Uh, I, I just don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if there's any reason to have Selvig anymore, but OK, there's no need. Um, I'm going to skip a bunch of this, but I do want to talk really quickly about Korg and Meek. Uh, they were seen in Thor's uh, 
house or apartment or whatever on new Asgard. And I just love, by the way, Mika using his like what knife hands to eat the pizza and Korg <laughs> is uh, fighting with someone while playing uh, Fortnite. <laughs> oh man that that's such a great moment and hearing taika waititi's voice again and just like of course these guys would be hanging out and of course they would like be so careful to go out of their way to not mention thanos and, and try to like just be good friends to thor and like protect him and speaking of good friends moments how about when uh when hulk gives um scott lang two tacos after all of the, the <laughs> filling blows out because the jet shows up in Avengers H- uh, HQ. I just thought that was such a nice moment. I was like, oh, friendship tacos, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I almost wish uh, wish they, um, Korg and Meek, were adopted by the Guardians of the Galaxy, but I guess maybe they're going to be part of Valkyrie's crew. Yeah, and it's not enough room in that ship for that many people, I don't yeah. think. Yeah. Um, is there anybody else that we missed that we should talk about? I, I think we pretty much touched on everybody. I do want to just point out that they managed to get William Hurt to come stand in the background of one shot so, so, so Thunderbolt Ross could be at Tony's funeral. Yeah. I think that was just because he was going to be in that Vanity Fair photo shoot. Yeah. And not, not just that, they also had um, – what's his name? Robert Redford reprising his role as uh, – <laughs> Alexander Pierce. Yes. Which was uh, nice to see because he was only in there for like a few seconds, you know, like a minute yeah. of the film. It was nice to see him return and them play on the whole Hydra thing from the uh, only other. Per- oh, yeah. The only other person that um, I think we didn't mention that we know for sure is coming back is Maria Hill, who is going to be back with Nick Fury in Spider-Man Far From Home. But, yeah, I think we pretty much covered everybody. So that is the future of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, obviously, there's stuff we didn't touch on. There's going to be Eternals introduced. There's going to be um, Shang-Chi is going to be kind of like, what, the the Chinese? Uh, they're looking at it as almost like a Chinese Black Panther kind of uh, hit is what they're aiming for. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and, um, and it's not a character has a very interesting background. So I'm very curious to see what they do with that. So I guess the last question here, I know we've gone way longer than we were planning to, but the last question is, uh, what now that we're done with the Infinity Saga, what is next? Like, the, Jacob, you have read a lot of the comic books. Like, what, what do you think they could be heading towards next? Like, are we going to see, like, uh, Secret Invasion? Secret Invasion was my go-to immediate response to this, because now we know the scrolls. We know the scrolls are... In Captain Marvel, they were, you know, good guys. It would be very interesting to have, like, in 30 years since Captain Marvel, the Skrulls have, you know, turned around, or at least a group of them have started infiltrating Earth, or, started, like, or have started, like, declaring war and started replacing Earth's heroes. I think that if they're going to bring back the Skrulls and that, that the groundwork's there, reversing that, having Captain Marvel have to come to the groups effect that her old allies, you know, maybe have shifted could be a very interesting way to take this. Uh, here's a quick question. Do you know if scrolls can take on the form of dead people? Uh, I think they can. Because that sure. could be a way for like Robert Downey Jr. to come back in some shocking surprise appearance for like out of nowhere that they keep out of all the marketing in one of these movies, you know, five years from now. Maybe he's just like he's not in anything for a long time and then all of a sudden he just shows up on screen and everybody gasps and then realizes that he's a scroll but i feel like the the amount of time for us to realize that would be so short because everybody would be like no this is something's up here yeah yeah i don't know just an option another rumor i've heard going around is uh dark avengers 
do you know anything about that, uh, Jacob? It's I know the basics, which is uh, in the comics. I mean, there have been various versions of this, but it's essentially a Suicide Squad with Avengers. Uh, I know that very similar teams have been formed by heroes trying to you know re- reform villains. Other times, I know like uh, Norman Osborn, Spider-Man villain, at one point um, became the head of Shield and used it for his own nefarious means, building his own team of Dark Avengers who are all you know villains in new armor. Uh, so I could an Avengers versus Avengers uh, like series where like there's a team of you know heroes versus villains posing as heroes could be fun. Yeah. I, th- I think that could be in the plans. Uh, do, do we have any other ideas at all? We don't. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh, oh, you know, one person we didn't mention here is Thanos. Is Thanos dead? I mean, he's been killed twice now. Yeah, he's gone. Uh, to bring Thanos back would be, the, would be a bad decision. <laughs> um, the other th- or actually, we, we didn't mention the villains. So really quick, Thanos, uh, bringing him back would be a bad decision, as you say. But um, on the other hand, I, I do want to say that I feel like that character was, uh, if I have any criticisms of this movie, they kind of turned that character from someone who had a point of view and had like some kind of uh, emotional motives into someone who just wanted to destroy the universe. And it became kind of like plain old comic book villain. Yeah, that, that's um, that's definitely something that I, I can get behind. I don't think Thanos is the most complicated villain, but I do like how he seems to have come to a clear, logical solution in his own mind in Infinity War. And here, yeah, definitely does resort to, I'm just going to kill everyone. Yeah, like, I don't even know what his plan was at that point. But, uh, I don't know. Um, Loki uh, is the last person I wanted to talk about because we didn't get to him. We mentioned him in passing. Um, in in this movie, he the 2012 version of him gets... Uh, possession of the Tesseract, and he uses it to jump somewhere. The Tesseract uh, can jump to other places, not times. Is that correct? Yeah, that's how it's been established in the past, but I wouldn't put it past Loki to find a way to make it a time travel device, which would lead to a Loki Disney Plus TV series. Yeah, We know the Disney Plus TV series is coming up. It's a limited series, and we've heard the potential that he's jumping around to different times, like famous events i'm guessing like forrest gump style Mm -hmm. quantum leaping his way through the mcu yeah so uh don't expect to see the end of him just yet but what do you think we'll ever see him again in the movies in the movies no yeah i think we're gonna get with these disney plus series I think we're going to get, like, these cool side stories. We're going to see people grow in between these movies. Like, you know, what I mentioned with Falcon and Winter Soldier. We're going to see him uh, finding acceptance into the S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, but it's going to be something that if you don't see that TV series, you could go from from Endgame to whatever the next movie is with Falcon. And it would just be like, oh, time has progressed and he's, accept- you know, things are going to be mentioned that happened in that show. But it's not like it's essential for you to see it. Because I don't think, like, anybody – like, most people don't have enough time to see all of this. I mean, I will. But um, – so I'm <laughs> guessing Loki's going to be one of those, like, branches off that will never come back to the main MCU timeline. So it's not going to be uh, complicated to connect the dots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, any final thoughts? 
uh, this movie rules. Yes. <laughs> it's way better than it has any right to be. Yeah. Uh, I've seen it three times now. I'll probably, I probably will see it again. Uh, so I hope you all enjoyed our analysis of the future of the MCU going by character by character. Uh, you can find more of all of our work at slash home.com. You can find this podcast slash home daily published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, or you can go to daily.slashfilm.com to find it there. Send- oh, Peter, can I plug one more thing, actually? Oh, yes. Uh, I, I recorded a, a spoiler-filled discussion, uh, a video review with David Chen from the Slash Filmcast, and that's published uh, on slashfilm.com right now. Maybe we can drop it in the show notes just in case, because I'm, I'm going to be leaving the country, and in case I, I'm not able to podcast with you guys over the next few days, um, I just wanted people to be able to check that out if you're interested in more uh, in-game discussion. Yes. Okay, send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention the email on the air. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you on Monday. David Chen here, and today I'm joined by Brian J. Roan from The Film Stage Show, uh, which is a show that I have been known to enjoy from time to time. And the reason I wanted to talk to Brian today is because, uh, you, know, you know, I saw a message that Brian had written about Avengers Endgame on, I think it was Letterboxd, and you had linked to your, I want to say, one and a half star review of the film. Yeah, um, it was actually just a half star. <laughs> just a half star. Okay, sorry, I got that wrong. Doing myself no favors already. <laughs> uh, you'd link to your half star review of Avengers Endgame. And uh, o- overall, I have not spoken with anyone who doesn't like this movie. Uh, but I'm, in general, always curious about other points of view. Like, I just, it, it's, I, I'm not in your head. I'm not thinking your mind space, you know, and, uh, right. and I want to be, no, I'm just joking, but I'm curious, <laughs> you know, I want to know, I want to understand like why someone would have such a violently negative reaction to Avengers Endgame. And so I'm like, Hey, let's, let's talk about it. So there's context <laughs> for why, uh, my reaction is so extreme. Um, I think that at a certain point, if this had been released in like summer instead of, pre-summer, new summer, whatever we want to call this season now. Um, I might not have reacted so strongly to it. But I guess the essential context is that as we sit here talking, it is the uh, 12th anniversary of one of my best friends like killing himself. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to portrayals of loss and grieving in movies and really media of all kinds, I have a certain sensitivity to it in general. And like this weekend in particular, definitely. So, so I left the movie and uh, we're full spoilers up front, right? Infinity War ends, half of everyone is wiped out. And this movie opens, they go, they try to stop Thanos or, or, you know, get the, the stones back and then they fail. And then it cuts to five years later 
And I feel like given that kind of weight, given that kind of time to sit with the tragedy sort of gives this movie a little more juice emotionally than I think it was prepared to deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, At that point, it's not just like, you know, the ship is sinking. We have to save everyone we can. It's the ship is sunk. It's at the bottom of the ocean. Everyone's dead. And the world has been moving forward. I won't say it's moved on because clearly it's difficult to move on from something like that. But, you know, people have been trying to start their lives or restart their lives. And the movie at the end of the day becomes the story of a bunch of people who are so viciously in denial over the loss that they've suffered, both in terms of the battle and the people that they just refuse to move on. And they turn that regressive static denial into this attempt to undo what has been done. And the way that the movie works, they undo it in like the most horrific way possible by bringing everyone back the instant that they disappeared, but five years in the future. And it just strikes me as this really hollow, morally compromised attempt to give a happy ending while still having some stakes. And it all just kind of becomes this weird, gross jumble that the movie never really tries to reckon with. Well, uh, first of all, I want to say I'm sorry for uh, the loss of your friend. Someone in the chat room also mentioned that as well. So I want to like pause for a second and like recognize that you've shared that with the world. Um, oh yeah, I've it's it's kind of funny because in my podcast that's like a go to <laughs> a go to anecdote. Uh-huh. Just because, um, in the same way that a lot of people will say, like I've grown up with these characters, you know, Marvel is important to me, Batman's important to me. I kind of have to acknowledge the aspects of my life that might make me feel a certain way about things. Mm-hmm. And so, pretty early on in in the podcasting career, it was like, well, I can't just not talk about this. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. yeah. But I appreciate that. Uh, and I think there is, it it is worth pausing to reflect on what it is this movie is trying to say about grief, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the marketing for the trailer, which I have, uh, many times since the movie came out, you know, it is this idea of like, just, just go to the most recent trailer and just transcribe the uh the the words from that trailer and it's very kind of like if you think about it from the perspective of grief you know like i can understand why you might find that to be pretty upsetting right god seems like a thousand years ago i fought my way out of that cave became iron man Realized I loved you. I know I said no more surprises, but I was really hoping to pull off one last one. The world has changed. None of us can go back. All we can do is our best. And sometimes the best that we can do is to start over.
saw all these people die. I keep telling everybody they should move on. Some do, but not us. Even if there's a small chance, we owe this to everyone who's not in this room to try. We will. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. I think it's uh, Peggy Carter. Is that the one who's speaking in the over the voiceover? Is like the world has moved on. Like it's a different place now. There is this line about not, but not us. Captain America says, "But not us." Everyone's moved on, but not us, right? Right. And then uh, Scarlett Johansson's character, Black Widow, is like, "Well, even if there's only a small chance, we owe it to everyone who's not in this room to try." And they're like, whatever it takes, whatever it takes to bring them back. Right. And w- evaluated out of context, right, that is like a pretty uh, upsetting way of looking at grief, right? The idea that like – the because because that's framed virtuously, right? It's framed like right. it, don't don't move on. Um, yeah. Even if there is a one in a million chance that like uh, your friends are still alive or can be brought back to life, you should hang on to that for dear life. Uh, because uh, that is the most adaptive form of behavior that uh, you can have in this situation. Right. Is that is that uh, a pretty good like is, is that a good surface level reading of the trailer and kind of like putting aside the movie? That's my take on the trailer, which is like somewhat well reflected in the final film, right? Right, and when you see that in the trailer, you're thinking to yourself, maybe it's only been a couple days, like maybe it's been like a week or two, you know, and. Again, if you if you're a person out there who's been through any kind of catastrophic loss or or even just a minor one, you know that like for a while that's what it's like. You know, you you want that. You want to figure out the thing that you can do that will undo things. You will you have dreams where the world is unchanged and you think to yourself maybe the bad thing was the dream, you know? But that's not how it works. And just, you know, to to make an entire movie based around the concept of like loss and grief is a powerful emotion that then will help you to undo the thing that happened (laughs) to bring back everything that was lost in a way that is somehow more terrifying than how it was lost. Honestly, if you really think about it. Yeah. Well, well, let's talk about that. You you mentioned, you mentioned that you're like, they, they bring them back in the most terrifying horrifying way possible or something you said something along those lines so like right what 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 are you talking about like why why is it terrifying to go back in time grab these stones and then simply return them to the time that they came from well that's not the part that's terrifying um yeah, what's, what's terrifying so i was talking to my friend dan gavazdan about this who i believe has been on your show twice now and you know he saw my reaction and he loved the film and so he was like, I don't get it, man. Like, what are, what's what's happening? And I told him, like, you know, it's a well-made film. And it has some self-satisfied, like, stuff that it's doing. But, it, you know, 21 films in 11 years or 10 years, 
they've earned it like good for them and that's fine but what really bothers me or what really started to give me pause when i thought about it was it's been five years we see people who've had trouble moving on that's true but there are people in that park in san francisco who are looking at names who seem to be if not fully okay, then at least ambulatory, you know, like Mm -hmm. they seem like they're adjusting and dealing with it. And I just can't imagine in a world five years after something like this happens, just bringing everyone back. (laughs) Like, can you imagine that? Like, can you imagine what would happen if someone passed away and then five years later just showed back up not believing any time had changed. Like the psychological strain on the person who's coming back is going to be intense. Mm-hmm. And then the psychological strain on all the people who had, you know, been grieving them or mourning them or who had heaven forbid moved on is going to be even more intense. And my friend Dan had not thought of any of this and was honestly a little like shocked that I had put so much thought into it. But, you know, he was like, can you give me some examples? Like, because I said, I've lost people in my life, but I don't want them back. Like Because it's not their presence that matters. It's the time that has been stolen, you know? Mm-hmm. And getting them back will give you more time. But, like, what do you do with the void that was there? Like, what do you do with all the emotions that you had that now suddenly you have to erase? But with a a facsimile, a five years younger facsimile who will never really be able to fully comprehend what you went through while you were missing them. And even on top of that, like I gave him one of the more extreme examples I could think of. Let's say a guy and his family are driving on the highway and he gets dusted or or whatever they call it, but none of his family does, but he was the driver of the car. And so the car crashes and everyone dies and suddenly he's back having believed that no time has passed, but now realizes that his family's been gone for five years. Like, what does that guy do? Like, what is his life like now? Right. That's horrifying. Yeah, you know, I, I agree. I agree. There's so much, and this is, I'm, well, I'm glad that you agree, first of all, because my friend... I, I agree that like, the, well, let me just say, I don't, I don't agree with what you're saying, but I agree that the idea of... A guy driving his family in his car, the guy vanishing, the family dying, then being brought back uh, by the Hulk snap, and then finding <laughs> his whole family was dead from this thing that he couldn't control five years ago, that is horrifying. I, I agree. Like yeah. Thinking about that hypothetical guy that we never see in the movie is, uh, is a truly terrifying prospect. Um, and that's part of the problem is that a lot of these movies – and I think you touched on this in your podcast um, – since in the in the post Joss Whedon years, we see a lot less of like civilian life. So it's it's almost hard to understand what most of the world thinks might have happened or how they're responding to it. Because aside from that, the the phone poll that we see that five years later still has missing persons posters on it and the uh, support group, we don't really see how people are handling it mm-hmm. in a in a really deep way. <laughs> So I would be remiss if I did not uh, 
sort of start calling out the many comments that are in the chat room right now about... Yeah, please do, because I don't think I can see them. So first of all, I I see in the chat room, like, Rebecca says that, uh, yes, it would be difficult to get over it if they just came back all of a sudden, uh, but uh, I... um, uh, I would still trade that for more time, which I think is like a completely understandable point of view. Um, like you, you Brian might feel like, oh well, I've already like moved on, and like it'd be too difficult or or whatever. And, like, but other people might not feel the same, and hopefully, you can understand that that's right. Case, I can right? I can empathize with yeah. that. I don't agree with it, but I I understand it. Like I I get it. Like that's a powerful drive, and you know. It's it's very easy to understand that that outlook. So uh, a lot of uh, I mean the overwhelming <laughs> voices uh, on here are talking about like hey it's a superhero movie you're thinking too hard about it and let me try to address that critique before you know I'm I'm happy for you to respond as well. Okay. Uh, like a lot Let's of people are first. like you're thinking too hard about this man like you're putting way too much thought into this and I think there is a um a question for people like Brian and myself about mm-hmm. how seriously do we need to take these movies, right? right. Like, uh, yes, this movie's going to make $350 million in three days at the box office this weekend. It is yeah. a cultural juggernaut. It is one of the largest pieces, uh, most widely consumed, most profitable pieces of media content ever in the history of mankind. Is it something we also need to take seriously from a philosophical standpoint? And many critics will tell you the answer to that question is yes, right? And right. so uh, if the answer to the question is yes, then in what ways can we take this film seriously? And I think Brian is grappling with like, okay, if I take the movie extremely seriously uh, and like take all the mechanics at face value, here is the lesson uh, I'm coming at. Yeah, so Enfantis 99 says, not seriously at all. There's a talking raccoon in it. And I mean, I think that's a completely defensible <laughs> point of view. It's just like, hey, I mean, like, in that- stop thinking about Like, turn your brain off. Leave your brain at the door, which, by the way, um, you're you're on the wrong periscope if that's like what you're interested in, right? <laughs> I was but, about to say, that's nothing that I can do. So right, I, right, but, but it's like, but, that. <laughs> that is a defensible point of view, I think, is like, right. hey, like, it's not serious at all. It's just superheroes. Don't even think about it. But I would say that that misreads the level to which these movies aspire to. Um, right. I don't think the movies are like, don't take us seriously. I don't think the movies are, you know, based on the textual evidence, I don't think the movies are trying to say, we have nothing important to tell the world. Like, these movies are completely inconsequential, and you should not take us seriously at all. That's, that's not the read I get when I watch the Avengers movies. Um, but, you know, other people might have different interpretations. However, when I watch the Avengers movies, it's a, it feels like this is a movie that a lot of thought was put into. And we have something to say about grief and loss and passing things on to the next generation. And uh, I think if they want to be taken seriously, this is the result. Literally, this periscope is the result of being taken <laughs> seriously, which is you have a yeah. guy, uh, Brian J. Rohn, from the Film Stage show. Uh, who's taking it seriously? And he might have had a different reaction than you, uh, but you know. So that's my attempt at arousing defense of what you're doing here, Brian. Any other thoughts about like, yeah, the taking the movie seriously? No, I mean th- there is there is a line because you know if I say, and I have said, you know, some of these movies I've really liked and some of them I haven't, and people have. You know, I've never I've I've tried never to brush them off as just like kids shit or what other people might say, because. 
first of all, that undersells kids, but also like it's it's not. These are clearly pitched at an older audience. And whenever I say like, you know, it's just dumb popcorn fun, you know, people come at me because they take them seriously. Like people take these films seriously just as the films take themselves seriously. And there's a balancing act that people seem to want from critics wherein we don't belittle the product by calling it something that's like dumb and just for kids. They want it to be taken seriously. They want it to be seen as some kind of art, but the go-to defense often is it's a superhero movie. Why are you taking this so seriously? And so I'm at a loss for what to do sometimes because I don't know what the audience for any kind of thoughtful criticism or investigation really wants out of me. I think you just, um, just got to do you, you know, I, I do think there is value in framing what you're going to be doing, which is like right. saying like, Hey, I'm going to take the movie ultimate, uh, like ultra seriously. Like if you don't want me to, you're not going to enjoy what I have to say, but and like, the aesthetics of the movie read that out. Like, you know, you can't, you can't have nine 11 imagery and you can't have, uh, aesthetics and stuff that lead people, many people to compare it to the leftovers and then, and then get upset when people examine things in that way in a more, um, in a more critical level. So let's, let's, yeah. um, I think one of the interesting things, right. Is there is that moment in the movie when, uh, he says, um, like Hulk is about to do the snap and I don't remember if it's Tony or someone says to him, okay, like, bring everyone back, but don't change anything else, right? Like, that's, right. that's, he's like, bring everyone back and don't change anything. And, and then, like, it happens so quickly. It's, it's like a five second moment of dialogue. And I'm just, and like, I've been thinking about, like, why did they do it that way? And like, my answer to that is, uh, all these movies have continuity. Like, at what point, would he have brought them back too if you want like theoretically it, let's say he had rewound time and everything went back to normal uh and it was the moment after the snap well right. thanos is still there like he's going to be like wait what the heck is happening you know like and then he would snap again so then you'd have to bring him back to a time after thanos had destroyed the infinity stone you know what i'm saying like and then right. it's like do you even know when that is and, and, like so uh I, I think there are many reasons to do it that way number 1 it just makes it more easy to understand for the audience. It's basically like, oh, I see. In this universe, all the events of the film have occurred except for everyone's back. And that's like really easy to comprehend, right? So there's right. this kind of screenwriting economy level to it. There's also the idea of like MCU, like continuity can continue to be preserved. Um, you know, so th- that like all these people will still remember the events of Avengers Endgame, right? And, right. Uh, and then... I mean, th- that's all I got in terms of why they would do it that way. But I think, like, that, that is really all that you are – that's, like, kind of one of your fundamental beefs with this is, like, why the decision to bring them back, uh, but everything else happened the last five years happened, right? Right. And also, I mean, like, I, had, I, I think I had forgotten about that whole exchange because, like you said, it goes by so fast. But, like, yeah, Tony literally says at some point in the movie, um, I want them back, but I don't want to lose what I've gained. Right, um, because is, uh, he had, he's had a daughter, right? So like he didn't right. want to uh, like undo his daughter being born. So that's right. even more of the kind of I'm 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 struggling to keep my words academic and non incendiary. <laughs> the the kind of flighty fairy tale, best of both worlds narrative that this is going for. It's like, well, we still have the 
the aesthetic impact of everything that happened, but everyone's back because in the Marvel universe, civilian casualties are how you score a game. And so like losing half the population is losing half your points, which is, is, is basically how this whole thing goes down. If they had figured out a different way to bring them back, you'd be more okay with the film. Is that, is that I, fair to say? I, I think if they'd done that, I would, I, I would still be like, cause when, when infinity war ended, I, um, I was kind of like, you know, how much does this matter? Everyone knows who's coming back. Like they're not, they're not crazy enough to just, you know, have a whole other movie happen and then them still lose. <laughs> and, you know, say, all right, well, we're in a leftovers world now. Like it's just going to be 50% of the population is gone. And, and maybe we get like a couple of euros back, but they're still, everyone's dead. And, but I think for whatever reason, the five year jump and trading on all of the aesthetic trappings of like intense mourning and grief only to undo all of it in that kind of magical, you know, uh, best of both worlds kind of way was really, really weirdly upsetting to me. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's like my main beef. Cause like I said, there's, there's a lot to like in this movie. Um, I love the last shot. I think that that's like a perfect way to end the movie, even though I'm confused about the time travel dynamics of it. But that's one of those things that I'm kind of willing to overlook because of the net thematic and narrative reasons. But there is, just a part of my brain that's like these people sat down and wrote this ending and thought this is really great there's nothing wrong here the ending my- with bringing everyone back you mean yeah yeah um there, so there's a question in the chat room about like don't you think these movies should be wish fulfillment and like spoil like so someone says uh alan kwan says in the chat room i think people want it both ways to have these treated seriously but also be seen as fun completely right. agree People want things both ways when it comes to things they like. Uh, and there is a – but there's also a sentiment in here of like spoilers for Quentin Tarantino's and Glorious Bastards coming up. But like if you haven't seen that movie, the ending of that movie is about how the Inglorious Bastards were able to kill Hitler. Uh, yeah. And like it's kind of the ultimate wish fulfillment. Like cinema you know, literally helps win the world war. Uh, film actually defeats the Nazis, so mm-hmm. on and so forth, right? And um, so what do you do, – don't you think there's some potential value in the idea of a film as wish fulfillment, right? As, hey, like, let's see what would – let's see what would happen. And, and by the way, I should also point out that uh, some people in the chat room are also pointing out you don't necessarily know – how the movie is going to deal with it. Maybe Spider-Man Far From Home will like really examine the consequences and it will turn out to have been a catastrophic decision to bring everyone back, you know, without any changes from five years. Right. Like that's and, one and, of those things that makes me weirdly more interested in Spider-Man Far From Home. Yeah. But, and this is maybe beyond the scope of this, but I'm, a, it's a little undercut by the fact that he will be far from home. He's, <laughs> okay. I think that it was brought up, um, by your guest on on your Endgame podcast, but like he doesn't want to be an Avenger. He wants to be a friendly neighborhood Spider Man. Then he goes to space, and now he's going to Europe. Uh huh. And I'm just like, you know, I'm from Queens. I, I'd like to see Spider Man there for a little while. Um, well, look, Brian, you can't have everything, okay? 
I know. It's just, I can't have it both ways. Um, um, but but uh, I'm just you understand the concept that like maybe Spider-Man addresses this and like that would uh, maybe like it, it might not address it in the perfect way that you want. But like it may take some of the air out of your criticism tires in in the case of it, this. It example, may. Right? And then yeah. that would be really great. But the the way that I would kind of sink that in my head, not trying to look at it the most uh, pessimistic way possible, but just going by former movies Mm -hmm. when shield dissolved not a lot happened yeah (laughs) like we found out that a major national security apparatus had been infiltrated by literal nazis but but not a lot really changed between all all the stuff changed like between the movies and then by the time they were in the next movie like everything was kind of status quo yeah so i'm curious if they're gonna do that for far from home it it feels like and this is crazy considering that they've had like 21 movies in 10 or 11 years but it feels like there are a lot of movies happening in between yeah that they've decided don't involve enough super heroics and so they kind of gloss over them so it's like and even at the end of this movie like peter goes back to school so schools are already up and running they've already found a way to like get over that and re-register all these people who they thought were missed. And his friend appears to be the same age. So I assume that they both got snapped. Right. But there's a part of me that like another, another idea I had is like, it's been five years. Let's say you were 16 and you were dating someone and now they're back. That's an illegal relationship. Like you thought they were dead. Maybe you still love them because in your head, you know, you only had that one summer together and now they're back. And it's like, Oh, you're still learning to drive and I can go to bars now. But Brian, <laughs> don't you don't you think that like taken to their extreme like any number of movies would be really upsetting like that? Like, oh yeah, absolutely. Welcome to my brain. <laughs> here's an and example. They, here's an example. Yeah. Like Spider-Man, he can shoot like webbing out of his uh, arms, right? But like by the first law of thermodynamics, like matter cannot be created or destroyed it must be preserved so like his his he's shooting essence of himself out into the world and like eventually it'll be all gone like he can do like three he's, swings and then he's he's basically all of his innards are depleted at that point he's got bags of bagels on top of every building in the city so he can carb up though yeah, yeah. Dude, but do you know that, what i mean like just like literally any single fact from any of these movies you could like it, it could be like disturbing if you if you consider the implications right that's true, though, for all the geeks in the audience, um, Spider-Man originally had web shooters no. that he made that had canisters of stuff. It was okay, only okay, okay so no, that's a, I'm glad you brought that up, Brian, because that means that this kid uh, has, uh, has bigger inventive power than anyone from like 3M or like the most advanced government institutions. And rather than share it with the world, he's hoarding it to himself to be a vigilante. Right. Yeah. I'm just saying, but I'm just saying, like, like literally any, just a single fact from any of these movies, you could take and like kind of plot it out and and uh, and, and make it into a way that it's like deeply upsetting, right? Absolutely. And, and I, you and I, I probably have done that for a bunch of times. But I think, like, I, I think at some point, I saw you post this on Facebook or something, like, where someone was like, "I wish you could just like let go." And just like yeah. I wish you could experience the true glory of um, Avengers Endgame. And there is this kind of idea of that like somehow being taken in by the film like people think that there's like some virtue in that that like that that you're a better person you're a more open human being uh if you kind of can shut your brain off in the ways that your brain is on and and kind of accept yeah. what the film is trying to do how how do you react to that uh it's not how my brain works <laughs> i um i find it hard to 
respond to something like that. Um, which is why when I posted that on Facebook, um, I didn't include his name and I haven't responded to him on Twitter. Cause like, clearly this is important to him. Um, and it, it, it honestly, uh, okay. So I'm Catholic. I have a lot of friends and stuff who are much more Christian than I am. <laughs> and every once in a while they'll say something slightly evangelical to me. And even though we believe in the same God and, you know, his only son and all that stuff, I still find it so hard to know how to respond to that level of righteous earnestness because I just don't feel that. And it's really awkward when someone talks to me that way about like a $300 million movie Mm -hmm. because I don't, I don't get it. Like the movie doesn't need my help. Right. The movie, you know, like I could, I could write the most scathing review on earth and I might convince like two of my friends to not see it until it's on Netflix or Disney plus tops, man. Two or three tops. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Uh, They'll probably, well, actually not even like they would just say, Oh, I won't see it opening weekend then. Like it's still going to happen. They're still going to do it. I, um, I don't have any, when I write a review, it's not really to, convince someone not to see a movie i'll write a review to convince someone to see a movie but when i'm reviewing a movie my main thought is this is for people who have seen it or who want to see it and want to know what it is about and so it's hard for a movie like this because like you know what you're getting you're getting the the action and the quips and all that stuff but there in this case was a deeper level that really kept me on the outside of it and that response as weirdly religious as it was was still basically like you know turn off your brain and enjoy this movie. It's like, if it's so important to you, shouldn't you want someone to engage with it in a way where it becomes important to them and not is, and isn't just like some shit that they shovel into their eyeballs. Yeah. Let's just read the comments. So like you, it says, quote, I really wish you'd open the door in your soul to this movie. Yep. It's sad that you can't feel the purity of absolute guttural joy and emotional impact that so many clearly have for this masterpiece. Please be courteous and respectful in the podcast review. Well, you, first of all, you, you admitted like four pleases, but yes, yeah. But well, first of all, it, it's clearly coming from a fan, right? So like, yeah. you, you gotta like at least acknowledge that. Hey, despite how much you disagree with this person, at least they listen to your show because, in the same way, they actually give a shit about what you think. Right. You know what I mean? Like, and and how you're coming across. Um. So I want to look on the bright side of this one. Um. This movie has weirdly brought out a lot of people who, you know, you're a podcaster. You you might see that you have like 4,000 downloads, but then you only hear from like two people unless you have a controversial opinion. Please, please 4,000, Brian? Come on, man. Closer to like 300. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) (laughs) And I've had a weird amount of people who reached out to me upon seeing this movie and were like, oh, brother, I don't think you're going to like it. And when I posted my feelings on Twitter, someone reached out and said, that they said out loud in the theater, oh, Brian is going to hate this. Like, used my name, even though I have no idea who this person is. And um, well, I, I find think there's something really special about that. I'm not joking yeah, at no. all. I think there's something about the fact that, like, people 
care enough about what you think that they actually like that a part of their brain space is devoted to wondering what you'll think of the movie i'm curious why people thought you dislike it though like is it i don't think they thought you dislike it because you're not there <laughs> because like you wouldn't like the logic of bringing everyone back in that way is it because of the grief stuff that they but they, they, they knew you generally wouldn't do well with the grief stuff i think maybe um I think so. I think that I think that because, like I said, on my podcast, whenever I have a, a movie that touches upon any of the number of sore spots in my life, I'm pretty open about it. So, like, the if, if anyone wants to go listen to me have a on air nervous breakdown, um, go listen to the podcast that we recorded on Manchester by the Sea. Um, so maybe maybe someone saw this and like the connection in their head was this is a movie about loss and grieving where you just have to punch hard enough and suddenly nothing like it's all back to normal. <laughs> and so right. that's, that's very possible. Um, it made me, but but at the same, I'm sorry, go ahead. You finish. Oh, I was going to say it, it was kind of heartening to see that, to like, to have, and you know, as you may know, um, to have that experience of someone reaching out and being like, I saw this movie and I thought of you, like whether yeah. their thought was, you know, Oh, he's going to love this movie or he's going to hate it. It, it is. Uh, it is very touching. And, and even though some of those people are saying, hey, your your brain is just not as elevated as everyone else <laughs> out there who can experience the glory of Avengers Endgame, um, yeah. it nonetheless is is still like a very, you know, a cool experience that people give a crap. Um, well, the reviews on – or the, the reviews, the comments on my letterbox have been similarly the same. Someone accused me of trying to alienate humanity and then another person just said that I was a bad man. Um <laughs> And so it, it is a weird thing. Like, I, I just think to like when I disagree with someone about a movie and I'm usually trying to understand their point of view and then just if I go beyond that, try to get them to see my point of view so that we can at least come to an understanding that we're both coming to the movie from a place of honesty. And it's weird to start off with your soul's broken. <laughs> That's how I start my first dates, Brian. Um, <laughs> your soul's broken. Why didn't you enjoy Endgame? So S H Fitz in the chat room says, like, you know, this is this is a comic book response to grief in the vein of wish fulfillment, mm-hmm. which I think is like, which is a completely legitimate way. To, like, what do you make of the idea that like it's wish fulfillment? You know, like, um, it's it's kind of like let's here's one permutation of what it would be like if uh, we could undo it. You know, and like let's examine that as like its own permutation with its positives and negatives. I guess my response to that is that that's that's true and that is fine, but I also find it to be potentially damaging. And also, like, there are horror movies built off of this premise. <laughs> um, yes, no one's no one saw it, but there was a Keanu Reeves movie I think called Replicas. Well, I mean, dude, Pet Cemetery just came out a few weeks <laughs> oh, ago. Yeah, yeah, but uh, potentially the people who were unsnapped are not going to be murder zombies. Uh, potentially. potentially. Who we, knows? Don't, we don't know. Again, you don't know yet, right? Maybe. Yeah, no. <laughs> I doubt it, though. <laughs> that would be super cool, though. So, but I, I, so if I'm reading you correctly, your response is uh, that's fine to have wish fulfillment, but because they're doing storytelling on such a broad scale, we're literally – I mean the movie's going to make probably a billion dollars this weekend, mm-hmm. right? So if yeah. you do – let's say let's, – let's assume – Twenty dollars per ticket. That's like obviously way overpriced. But like, let's say right. twenty dollars per ticket. That's uh, fifty million people that are going to see this movie this weekend, right? Yeah. So fifty million people are going to be like, 
uh, taking in this movie's take, like internalizing this movie's take on grief. Uh, S.H. Fitz says, it's damaging to someone who is vulnerable, but not most people. I mean, I find that like pretty unconvincing, S.H. Fitz, you know what I mean? Like... (laughs) uh, well, how, shouldn't shouldn't we care about the people who are most vulnerable and like how they're interpreting things? I don't know. Also, um, I mean, this movie that, that's that's an understandable statement to make. Um, but you don't know how many all people, people are, are actually, vulnerable. Mike says, <laughs> right? I was going to say you don't know how many people are actually vulnerable because vulnerability is not really well respected in this culture. Yeah. Um, so you know, the people sitting next to me at the movie didn't know that, like you know. I saw this yesterday at like five o'clock in the afternoon. You know, they didn't know that like, you know, in seven hours I'd be marking a grim anniversary. It, you know, people hide that stuff and, and it, it doesn't take much to, to suddenly have someone thinking like, yeah, you know, like why do we ever move on? Shouldn't we just like rage against outrageous misfortune and, and try to change it? And like, yeah, I guess spoilers for Manchester by the Sea. Um, the ending of that movie, you know, he doesn't have like a, a biking off into the sunset with his arms raised in the air type of thing. It, the whole end of that movie is an incremental step forward in a positive direction, but like an understanding that he will never completely be whole again. And, you know, like that's and that's and better. you and but. So I guess I guess my question is: Do you wish them like here are some emotions you could feel when you're watching Avengers mm-hmm. Endgame? You could say like, I wish Avengers Endgame had been an extremely ponderous examination of the nature of grief. You could say Avengers Endgame was not an extremely ponderous examination of the nature of grief, uh, and therefore it's not for me, right? Right. Uh, or you, but what you've seemingly done is you've said, hey. Avengers Endgame is not a ponderous examination of the nature of grief, and I find it morally reprehensible, right? Which, right, like, because... I, I don't, I can, I'm with you for the first two. Okay. Uh, like, w- one, how you feel, that's completely fine, you know? Like, that's not how, what I want, but, like, if you want that in a movie, that's fine. I'm a huge mm-hmm. fan of Manchester by the Sea, which uh, was released by my employer, so, obviously, always promote movies like that. Um, uh, two, you're like, it's not for me. Okay, fine, yeah. You're, you're not saying, like, hey... Um, this movie's not for me, and whatever. Live and let live. But you're also saying, hey, you're kind of in some way saying, I wish this movie had never been made, or the movie's actually going to do damage. You're kind of, in that, you're kind of assuming that people can't separate com- a comic wish fulfillment from reality, right? And, like, um, there's this implication that, like, that people won't understand that this movie is meant to be um, set in a different universe with completely different rules than us. You know what I'm saying? Right. And I think my response to that would be that the movie, again, uses the aesthetic trappings of a serious movie. And the reaction that a lot of people have had to it is extremely emotional. Talking about crying during different parts and like, you know, seeing all these things and feeling all these things. But then the movie almost doesn't respect that. It doesn't respect that very real journey because at the end of the day, it it, it switches everything back and and gives this weirdly dark in my head fairy tale ending and and maybe it is the size of it maybe it's the concept that like i know friends who don't see any movies but marvel movies and then they come out swinging for this movie talking about how like i'm gonna love it because i love the leftovers and it just becomes this weird 
angry, indignant impulse in me to be like, that's not how this works. And that's not, I, I don't understand how people are taking any meaning from it. Like if most people's reaction was that was a good, you know, 180 minutes of seeing people, you know, fighting Thanos and winning, that might be one thing, but there's this weird undercurrent of people finding this movie to be, I don't know, like it, like it, like it is saying something important and potent about grief and loss. And so when I go into it and look for what it's trying to say about it, to see what all these other people are seeing, all I'm seeing is this very screwed up morality that says, don't give up, like never move on and uh, take a million and one chance to like get the person back because you're going to win. But that's not how that works. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's one. That's one interpretation, right? <laughs> um, and I'm sure the people uh, in the chat are screaming at me right now. Sh uh, so Fitz says, "I feel bad for this guy. I really do." <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> I, I think. I think. Um, I you know, I agree that the movie is very hand wavy about. Um, the movie's very hand wavy about like what the consequences of the the snap are and undoing the snap are, right? Mm -hmm. I think the movie's very hand wavy about that and like this movie specifically. Maybe future movies will, right? Because by the right. way, we should point out that it took like Tony Stark ten years and twenty two films to really kind of you know in, in the podcast we pointed out like change from being truly selfish to truly selfless and. Right. You know, like things take time to alter people, and like we don't know. Maybe like maybe like five years from now, there's going to be some incredible dealing with the undusting movie that like we have yet to comprehend. And and like I know that's kind of a really like uh, I'm I'm not saying therefore we should not judge this movie at all, right? But I'm just right. saying like maybe we're like with MCU, we're always kind of like seeing parts of a whole, right? So like that's just something to keep in mind, but. Uh, it almost sounds like you're objecting to the fact that like people got something out of it that you don't think is there. You know what I mean? Like that's that's what it feels like to me. Is like people had this profound crying filled experience, and you want to say to them, "Hey, you shouldn't be crying because this is so deeply upsetting." If you think about the implications of it, right? Am I do I, am I capturing this correctly, or am I being too presumptuous? I think that that's close. Um, I. I don't want to say like, you know, go out and experience the real world. God damn it. Like there's so much more out there, <laughs> but there is, there is a part of that where I'm just kind of blown away that, that that could be the response to it. And that, and that people are going there and feeling that when, again, it's just like the, the morality is so screwed up. Like it's, it's such a dark message and it's such a dark ending and you you bring up a good point about like how in a couple movies they could change everything and i i i can deal with that stuff on television shows but i'm having a hard time adjusting to that same thought process in cinema because i still want a movie to tell a complete story mm -hmm. and so i can't I don't know if I'm going to be here in five years, you know, I live in Washington, DC. If something goes down, it's going down here. So like, it's possible that, you know, Spider-Man once more, even further from home, will have something in it that is, <laughs> <laughs> is going to like 
suddenly snap everything into sharp relief. But like presently, all I have is this, and I it's it's not imperative for me to go out and keep seeing this just to see where it's going to go because I paid for my one ticket, one experience, and I have to take from that experience what it gives me. I think that one of the things is like you're kind of concerned about the the moral of the of the movie right and like mm-hmm. what you're, you're kind of it sounds like what are you what are you uh you're, you're kind of asking like what did people take away from it because you you have created this narrative of what the movie's trying to say right right which is like not in a million years like never give up it's always worth blah 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 you know like that's one but but like that is not necessarily the canonical interpretation of the film nor is that necessarily the only interpretation one could take away from the film. Oh, right? absolutely not. Yeah. Right? There's other there's other interpretations other things you can take away, right? Uh I I actually think a point that I think Mike in the chat room brought up earlier is like a very good one which is that uh maybe what the movie's trying to say is in a universe where it's possible to bring people <laughs> back never give up, right? That is that is 100% possible. And um I, I actually I know it sounds like I'm joking. I'm being like completely legitimate like um you know like maybe in a universe where it is possible like and we don't know what circumstances under which people are losing people in the world these days, you know, like uh, there's all kinds of things and maybe like for some people it is possible to bring someone back in a way that, you know, like you just so uh which yeah. Okay. Um you get what I'm saying? I do. It's yeah. um you do have to you know, it's it's like yeah, it is. It's one of those things of like, in a world where this is possible, why not try again? Um, but I guess that then makes me wonder, like, well, why didn't they just snap Tony back to life? Like, is that a possibility? They still had the stones. Hulk still had one good hand, you know, or you could, like, find someone else to do it. it it's... I think that uh, that's I not how I thought that, you were going to spend. I thought you were going to say like, well, if that's the case, like, how applicable are these lessons to like our world, right? Well, there's that too. Yeah. I mean, it's it's escapism, which is fine, um, but it's escapism that is parading around in the trappings of a more meaningful and universally applicable, you know, story. But it, like, so if the if the moral of the tale is. If you can travel the universe and five, find five stones to like bring back everyone on Earth, then you should try. Like, if that were a real possibility for us, I'd say, fuck yeah. Like, okay, 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 okay. Let me, that's, you know, I'm kind of making ridiculous arguments, but let me make a real argument, right? Which is okay. that, like, um, which is uh, one huge part of the movie is about like people reconciling with their parents or like coming to terms with their parents. Um, when they go back in time and, and, and putting aside the time travel elements, it's like, Hey, like one of the lessons of the movie I could take away is like, Hey, it's a, it's important to like make things right with your parents when you have the chance. That's a mm-hmm. very clear, legitimate lesson I could take from this film. Another thing right. is like, it's important for parents to pass on to the next generation, like the values, uh, and integrity and all the important things that like make life worth living and worth existing in a, in a society and so on. So, you know, like, that that there are values and important things we can pass on to our children that will like stand the test of time, and like these are completely legitimate lessons to draw from the movie, in my opinion. Um, regardless of how the movie cavalierly treats the bringing back of uh, the dusted, like right, I, and maybe like I think a lot of people, uh, certainly me, I was crying because of uh, stuff like that. You know, like the, the thinking about those ideas, thinking about how those ideas are rendered on screen. 
right? And it doesn't necessarily have to do with like I'm not at the time thinking. Uh, you know, I'm crying because the idea of these people coming back is so great. I can't, I, I, like, I can't wait to imp- implement this in my real life <laughs> of like n- never letting go of people who die. You know, like, right? That's not necessarily what I'm what I'm thinking. I'm thinking like, oh wow, yeah, like this movie's really reminding me of like uh, how important my relationship with my parents is. You know, and like I need to go call them, like that kind of thing, right? So, like, I mean, don't you feel like those are really legitimate reactions to the film? Yes. Um, <laughs> it, it was painful for you to say that, though, right? I had to think about it because, yeah. again, everyone experiences the world differently. Some people are colorblind, you know, can't see the color green. So, like, what's life like to them? Um, so, for me, I just – In like, this analogy, I, you are the colorblind person? <laughs> possibly. <that> right? <laughs> because I remember seeing him run into his dad and when his dad's like, you want to go upstairs and get some air? I was like, fuck, just get the stone back to 2000 and whatever it is. Like, for God's sakes, move. Um, and I, I, I don't, you know, that's, that's one of those plot things where like, uh, that's not so much tied in with my feelings about the themes and everything as it is with like pacing and like a seeming lack of immediacy. But like, you know, him having that conversation with his dad, like I can understand that on a, on an academic level that doesn't hit me in any emotional way. Um, but that in no way invalidates the experience of anyone who felt that way. For me, that scene was confusing. Cause I thought he, I thought his dad was like a monster. I don't know if that's Canon or if I'm just misremembering another movie. I don't think that's, I don't think that's right. He didn't okay. have like the greatest relationship with his dad, but like, I don't think he was a monster at any, in any regard. Um, I couldn't, I thought it was one of, I thought it was like Iron Man two where like he saw like a, like a film strip, like a, like a 16 millimeter film of his dad. And he was just like the worst, but no, maybe his I'm dad just was like, I think his dad was talking to Tony in that film strip and was like, you are my greatest creation. Okay. You, so it's literally the opposite of what you're saying. But I think that that maybe I'm Brian, just thinking what, of John Slattery and Mad Men. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Brian, all I'm trying to do is I think like I know what it's like to be in a situation such as yours not from a grief perspective but from the perspective of everyone around me is having this like reaction to a film that I think is profoundly not even just wrong but like also uh, potentially damaging to society, right? <laughs> Which film and, was that for you? Uh, so many, so many, and um, <laughs> any of the Transformers movies. And oh, I think, <laughs> and I think that, like, what I'm trying to say to you is, like, in the case of Avengers Endgame, I actually think there are ways to watch this movie and enjoy it without necessarily internalizing like terrible messages about uh, grief and not moving on. That's kind of like the argument that I'm trying to like push forward to you. And I'm um, I. I wouldn't argue against that, but I think that that falls back into that trap of like, take this seriously, but don't seriously look at it, you know, because there's, I disagree, I disagree but continue. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know the best way to put this. Um, almost anything can have one redeeming quality in it, but if the whole of it is in any way corrupt, I feel like, while that doesn't denigrate the the redeeming quality it's still something that has to be at least acknowledged uh i agree i, I i'm fine i'm acknowledging you man okay <laughs> that's yeah, what this yeah. whole that's what this whole <laughs> broadcast is you know I'm, I'm acknowledging that like 
that, that that's totally a uh, a reading of the film. And I, I'm also asking you to acknowledge that it's possible to interpret this extremely fantastical wish fulfillment uh, epic film as something that can carry messages beyond the scope of its plot mechanics. Um, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And, and, and it can, and there's, there's moments in it that, that do do that. Um, Thor with his mom is the one that immediately jumps to, uh, my memory. Um, the one that you talked about Tony and his dad, but again, it, it still feels to me that the overarching messaging and the overarching plot just tie so intrinsically into all those moments that you can't consider them without considering what has brought them into being. And so it becomes a lot harder for me to focus in on those things in, in a really deep emotional way because there's like this, this giant black cloud hanging over the whole movie that is keeping me from being able to do that. So I can acknowledge all those things and see them academically, but I just, I just can't, I can't interface with them emotionally. Well, Brian, uh, I am very grateful to you for chatting with me. Uh, ag- MC uh, Elweg in the chat room says, agree to disagree. And uh, I think that's where we're going to have to leave it. But yeah, I hope that I've at least made my points clearly. I think if so. Not, I if think not so. persuasively. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not particularly persuaded, but I, yeah. I, I agree it is worth thinking about uh, what the movie has to say about grief and what potential damage could come from that. And I... And I've tried not to bring up any ideas of like the infantilization of American culture or anything like that. Cause that's like a, a whole subject that's beyond me, but I'm sure that there's a part of that in there too. I, I think it'll be interesting to see how people react to this movie. You know, like a movie like yeah. this is going to have an impact in the culture for, I don't know about decades, but like many years. Right. And, uh, years from now, like, you know, kids who have grown up with this movie will be like, uh, will be dealing with its messages or not dealing with them, you know, but like, I think, I think we're not going to see the negative impacts that you're talking about for a long time if they ever come. Um, right. and so and, and, it, I, I think it's just too soon to tell whether or not like Amer- Avengers Endgame is damaging to American society. Right. Uh, I'm not about to write that hot take. And there's a reason that I've tried to couch most of this in my own personal experience. Yeah. Um, which may be reflected in other people, but I'm not about to go out there and write like the ways that Avengers Endgame are setting our children up to not understand the cost of mor- mortality. Mm-hmm. It sounds um, like that's what you think, though. But like you're not. But you're 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 trying to make it very personal to your own reaction, right? Right, and I think that my 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 dissatisfaction with the movie doesn't. I don't think that the movie has to teach anyone about mortality, but I think that in treating it so much like a plot mechanic it almost trivializes it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's more my 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 issue with the movie like i'm you know i don't think that like i have a two-year-old daughter and i don't think that at like seven you know if if our dog or cat dies she's gonna be like well can we go get the infinity stones and snap her back and i'll have to be like oh cora no that's not how this works like i don't think that that's the future that we're headed for but i think that to take something as important and as universal as the grieving process and then turn that into a motivator 
for a, a magical hunter gatherer time heist thing is a little like callous and weird. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for sharing, uh, Brian. Uh, where can people find more of your work on the internet? Uh, you can follow me on all social media at Brian J. Rowan, uh, B-R-I-A-N-J-R-O-A-N. And um, my podcast is The Film Stage Show, which you can find at thefilmstage.com. Um, I'm not as terrible as I seem. <laughs> <laughs> also a line I use, uh, not just with you know first dates, but many acquaintances. I, I've already mentioned my growing up or having like family and stuff in Queens. And there's a part of me that legitimately thinks that like it's damaged me in some ways. Cause I was, I was talking to a friend and I was like, you don't think I'm like too aggressive when I talk to people and like have opinions, do you? And he's like, not too, just like way, way, way too aggressive. I was like, Oh shit. Hmm. <laughs> so hmm. yeah. Well, uh, I don't think I have any comment on that, but uh, either way, appreciate you joining me and sharing your thoughts. And thank you for having me. It's been a it's been a pleasure.